Maimonides, Late Night Movies with Robin Ben and Zach when he's here. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally these projects gel. Most times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. Wait. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And Ramon went to the clinic today, and I found out that I have um, herpes simplex 10. (laughs) It's the only goddamn... Okay, okay. Of course, we are continuing on with our Martin Breast series, the series that Rob has been wanting to do for so long, and we're finally getting to... And we have someone who we'll get into it, but I'm assuming has not a lot of knowledge of knowledge uh, knowledge breast Martin Breast, the breast man himself. We have Ben. So Ben, I have I, to ask you at the start of this: Are you aware of the breast man? I know a lot about breasts of all kinds, except the Martin kind. <laughs> That's the only kind of breast I don't have like intimate experience with. Okay. Okay. So uh, I, uh, I think uh, we can, before we get into it, because before we talk about this movie in particular and why we're discussing this movie in particular, that uh, we have to give a shout-out to the Cinemodities Patreon. Uh, ben, we can say now that we have two patrons, but right. hopefully by the time this comes out, which is the third week in February, we will have more than two. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so right now we've got two. If my projection of doubling until we reach double digits happens, we should be up to like eight by then. Yes, something like that. I Some, don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I don't do I don't do numbers good. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll probably be putting in my two weeks' notice at that point. Yes, exactly. So so yes, check out uh, patreon.com slash cinemodities. There's a lot of cool stuff on there. Uh, the ability to get some requests in, the ability to get early access, the ability to just give us money. That's my favorite part of the Patreon. <laughs> it's You know, that is really nice. Uh, but one of the perks is that you get to listen to me and, and Rob talk about fucking movies. That's, uh... <laughs> and a fucking TV show, Adventure Time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is good. We can we can curse a lot in this episode because this movie's rated R. You know, <laughs> that's what Perfect. dictates our cursing. <laughs> and then anybody who's listened to the Adventure Time episodes, well, that's like TVPG. I'm pretty sure they curse a lot in that. <laughs> well, we don't hold back. So before we jump into this movie, of course, we've plugged the Patreon. Uh, as Ben said earlier, Zach is not here. We have to know well what is Zach doing that he's not here. He is at the restaurant. I think everything at the restaurant's running fairly smoothly. Uh, he hasn't told me of any issues or haven't gotten any word from Maximo or anything like that about problems. Zach is simply taking a break from Martin Brest and preparing for the rest of the year on Cinemodities, which, as we've mentioned a few times, is the, the giant series of pre-9-11-2001 films. And so Zach is preparing a lot for that. And uh, also, Martin Brest, as we all know, is a Rob series for sure. I told Zach when we started this two weeks ago and we discussed Hot Tomorrows, he could take a week off for Beverly Hills Cop because, as I've made no stranger to this podcast, my feelings on Beverly Hills Cop, this movie is basically cancer. <laughs> Before we get Ben's opinion on Beverly Hills Cop, I did want to ask him about Martin Brest. I know he already said he doesn't have a lot of knowledge of who that is, but he is a, a big director, one of my... I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't even say favorite directors. I'm so infatuated by his career and how strange it is. Our, we already discussed his first two films, uh, Hot Tomorrows and Going in Style. I can say for certain Ben has never seen Hot Tomorrows. 
because as Zach and I discussed, we think there have only been 10 people in the world that have seen it since 1980. That movie is very obscure. Uh, going in style, I, I'm going to also assume Ben has not seen, but that's about the old guys who decide, like three old men decide to rob a bank and they go, either we succeed and have a bunch of money to live off of, or we go to jail and have a place to live until we die. Like, that's the premise of that movie. Does this sound familiar at all? No, it doesn't, but that sounds like a good plan. It is. It's a very good movie. Um, it's Hot Tomorrows and Going in Style, as we've already discussed. They're very much about death, like the obsession with death, the infatuation with death, the, the dealing with, you know, your own death uh, as in Going in Style. But the thing I want to point out is that Martin Brest wrote both of his first two movies. Beverly Hills Cop is the start of when he does not write his own movies until his last one, which we'll get to. So I'm assuming, Ben, you've seen Beverly Hills Cop because that's what we're discussing today. That'd be very strange if you were just like, nope, I didn't watch it. We talked about it a little when Chris and and Rob and I did Trading Places. That was good enough. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, but before I answer that, I have to say I – when you when you said Hot Tomorrows, I Googled it, or I tried to Google it. I accidentally hit enter too fast, left off an S, and uh, I got information about the weather. So that's <laughs> that's, uh, that's how awesome. widely known that movie is. That's awesome. When you leave off one letter, you just get... It, it, it's not even going to be Hot Tomorrow. It's 37 tomorrow. <laughs> Google's like, are you stupid? It's it's January. <laughs> no, no, cold tomorrow. Um, <laughs> Zach and I, we did refer to that movie as cold yesterday's when we discussed it. So, <laughs> As you want to do, um, negate every word. Yes. I I have seen Beverly Hills Cop. I, I definitely tried to watch it twice. As you know, I like to watch yep. anything we're going to talk about twice. I tried... This might be the first time I didn't succeed. Okay, that is that is totally understandable, and I'm glad we, we will get into that. And it sounds like you're in somewhat of agreeance. But before we get there, Midnight Run. Are you familiar with Midnight Run? Robert De Niro plays like a bounty hunter trying to like get this dude who's like uh, has a bounty on him like back to uh, Joe Pantoliano. <laughs> um, yeah, I've heard of Morning Walk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've never heard of midnight. Is midnight is morning the opposite of midnight? I thought it'd be noon, I, like noon, noon, <laughs> a noon slumber. Like is, noon is slumber. That like a, okay, it's really the opposite of this movie. Is just siesta. Yes, yes. So midnight run is actually going to be what we're discussing next week. A little spoiler. I think that movie's really fun. Um, but then Martin Brest really breaks through with after midnight run. He makes a movie called Scent of a Woman, and that is Al Pacino plays a blind man. And the guy who plays uh, Flame On, Johnny Torch, in the first Fantastic Four movie is, like, his caretaker. Does this sound familiar at all? The only reason I ask if this one might sound familiar is because this movie won a shitload of awards. What did you say it's called? A Scent of a Woman. It sounds creepy. It, it is pretty creepy. Al Pacino being blind is a very creepy thought. <laughs> Does he grope people to see what they look like? I, uh, I don't think there's too much of that in the movie. Um, that's one I haven't seen in a while. I have to revisit before we get to next week so I can give my rankings. But that, that's where Martin Brest is really like, people are like, wow, this dude is a powerhouse. Like, that movie made so much money. That movie made so many awards. It got his nomination for Best Director. I think he might Was have Daredevil won. a sequel, sequel to this? Oh, we could only hope, man. That would have been great. <laughs> 
Um, so after Scent of a Woman, Ben, are you familiar with Meet Joe Black, where Brad Pitt dies at the beginning of the movie, and then death possesses his body because he wants to spend time in the real world? This, that one I've heard of. I've okay. Not, I don't know if I've seen it, but I've definitely heard of it. I have only seen the second half of that movie, because back on May the 4th in 2019, I believe... Uh, Zach and I did an episode on Knights of Vader where he watched the first hour and a half, I watched the second hour and a half, and then we discussed it. Yes, it is three three fucking hours long. So uh, that one did not receive a lot of acclaim. But then Martin Brest directs his final film, which I know you've heard of because I've told you about it, Gigli. The film that is regularly considered the worst film in existence. Uh, how's that spelled? Uh, G-I-G-L-I. So it's like giggly, <laughs> but with an I at the end. <laughs> giggly. That movie. Is this, I, is this I, also I, Ben Affleck? Yeah, yeah. Ben Affleck plays Larry Gigli. <laughs> this is the last movie of his career? That is the last is... movie he ever made. That movie gets such a bad response, and I recommend everybody, Ben included, check out episode 99 of Cinemodities where we discuss Gigli. I do, I give like, well, the first hour of that episode is me just describing Martin Brest's career in huge detail, which is why we don't really get into it in this series. But this movie is so bad, it is it needs to be watched by everyone as an academic exercise. Like I was tempted to show this movie to like my statistics classes and be like, listen, we're doing an off the books lesson today. This is how to make a bad movie. (laughs) I I just Googled Gigli and I came across a GQ article that's titled 15 years later. Was Gigli really that bad? Spoiler. Yes. (laughs) But you've probably forgotten all the extremely strange and weird, weird ways it was. Uh, I strongly recommend either people see that movie or uh, check out episode 99 of Cinemodities. That movie is so strange. It's it's like one of those movies that is is definitively a Cinemodity. Like it's just, it would be a Cinemodity if this podcast didn't even exist. Like people would watch that and go, "This was cinematic. This was odd." They might not put the words together, but they would have thought. That. <laughs> so Ben, are you saying that now? Out of all these movies, I think the seven that he's directed, you have not seen any of them except Beverly Hills Cop. That sounds right. This is, this is why we have been on the Martin Breast series, because, because same thing goes for Zach pretty much. He's, uh, he's only seen the Martin Breast movies I've made him watch, so it seems like I'm the only one infatuated with Martin Breast. Just for Ben's context, I know we said this back in the Gigli episode, um, No one really knows what happened to Martin Brest. Like, in all of my research on his history, there's an article, I think, from 2007 that, like, details his career that you cannot find online in any other format except the Wayback Machine through archive.com and stuff like that. And it is a Playboy article about Martin Brest. Maybe that's the joke? Who knows? But at the end of that article, they interview some of his friends, uh, people that worked with him back in the 90s, and they go, we, we really haven't talked to him in like 10 years, five years. Like, we think he lives in New York, but we're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this podcast, this series is also about, hey, Martin Brest, if you're listening, because we're talking about your movies, uh, we would love to have you on. Even if not have you on, I would love to just interview you, pick your brain. Not even a real interview. Just I want to sit down with you and be like, dude, you are so interesting as a filmmaker. <laughs> So what I'm learning about this Geely movie is that 
there's a lot of slurs about lesbians and the intellectually disabled. Justin Bartha, who you probably know best, Ben, as the guy that gets lost in all of the Hangover movies that they're trying to find. Okay. He is not mentally handicapped in real life. He plays a severely mentally handicapped person in Gigli. The premise of Gigli is that uh, Ben Affleck kidnaps Justin Bartha, the mentally handicapped character, from his, like, nursing home to blackmail a DA to drop a case against Al Pacino. Okay. The movie involves such great moments as the mentally handicapped person not understanding that he's been kidnapped, wanting to have Ben Affleck read him a bedtime story, so Ben Affleck reads him the ingredients on a hot sauce bottle, because Ben Affleck does not read books in that movie. He says something like, books are for something in that movie. <laughs> it is it is a mess. Like, there is no point in that movie that is not a total mess, but it is, like I said, it's an academic exercise. Like, that movie is so weirdly fascinating. <laughs> okay, I think I... Think I remember why you brought this movie up at one point and it was when we talked about chasing amy because ben affleck is trying to sleep with a lesbian yes that that is the that is the b plot of this movie while him and jennifer lopez have to like hold the mentally handicapped character hostage he wants to fuck jennifer lopez and and larry Gigli, played by ben affleck tries to convert her from being a lesbian. There's a whole scene where they talk about what's like the more important sexual organ, the penis or the vagina. And it's like a 10 minute long scene. And it's the weirdest goddamn thing. More important? That's how they like, frame it. <laughs> like with respect to what? Pregnancy? Every, no, everything, Ben. They talk about everything. They talk about the decisions made by cultural and governmental leaders throughout history and stuff like that dude you should honestly watch this movie <laughs> everybody should honestly watch this movie <laughs> all right so yes that's that's the quick uh the quick uh refresher recap for ben for martin breast but i guess with that being said we can discuss beverly hills cop and just like zach and i have done back in the paul bartell series also when i did the uh Danny DeVito series without Zach, I always say in those, you can't just talk about the movies that you are discussing the director of in the veins of the ones you like. Because sure, we could have done, we could have skipped Beverly Hills Cop, we could have went right to Midnight Run, and then we could have did Gigli again, because that'd be a fun revisit, you know? We just have like a bunch of people that have never seen Gigli and we talk about it with them. But we always have to take the bad with the good. And oh my God, do I hate Beverly Hills Cop. Before I throw it over to you, Ben, I wanted to pitch something or propose or state something that I'm not sure you're aware of. This movie comes out in early December 1984. It costs $13 million. $4 million of that goes to Eddie Murphy. That's a little over 30% of the budget. So $9 million went to the rest of this movie. This movie makes $315 million at the box office. It is the highest grossing movie of 1984. This movie is regularly cited as one of the best comedies ever, one of Eddie Murphy's best performances, and Axel Foley, Eddie Murphy's character, is often cited as one of the best film heroes in American cinema. I could not disagree more, and I'm glad we're finally discussing this movie because I can finally explain why I disagree about the, the respect that this movie gets. But now that you've seen it, Ben, please enlighten us. What are your thoughts on Beverly Hills Cop? 
the biggest movie fucking comedy of 19. 19- this, <laughs> this is there's no part about about this movie that's funny. If anything, this movie comes closer to a music video than it does a movie. Oh my god! Oh my god! Ben's hitting it all 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 correctly as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> the funniest line in the movie is the one I quoted at the beginning when he goes, "I have herpes simplex ten, and I'm like, I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> No, it's just herpes simplex virus. And that's the only funny line in the movie. So can we agree that barely maybe one or two of the jokes actually land in this movie? And even jokes I'm putting in air quotes. I, okay, one or two, maybe three. They're, like, <laughs> I remember one in particular that really fucking didn't land. The uh, anti-banana disguise. Oh my god. Yes. Why, why would having a banana on your nose be anti-banana? Wouldn't other bananas be attracted to you? Why, why is it that he needs a disguise? Is he hiding from the bananas? I thought the problem was that the bananas were hiding from him. Is, is this supposed to make it so that the bananas trust him? It, it makes, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. If anything, it's a banana infiltration disguise. The, the one that always gets me is the, the cutback to the two cops. So our Judge Reinhold and John Ashton, uh, Rosewood and Taggart. And they're okay. just, they're, for some reason, they just, like, in the middle of a scene with Eddie Murphy and the girl, and I'm not being, like, sexist, she's just the girl in this movie. Yes, she has a character named Jenny, but she is just vacuous female character. And they cuts from the girl to the two cops, and one of them's like, did you know by the time you're 50 or whatever, you have five, undi- five pounds of undigested red meat in your bowels? And the other one goes, why are you telling me this? Because you eat a lot of red meat. And it cuts back to Eddie Murphy. And I'm like, is this what comedy was in the 80s? And the answer, Ben, is no. Because Trading Places was the year before this. So comedy existed. It's not like this was groundbreaking comedy. <laughs> I mean, didn't like the Three Stooges exist for like a long time before this? E- everything. Like- Real comedy existed well before this. So I'm, I'm glad that... We're in agreement. I do not find this movie funny. I find it so Eddie Murphy doing his shtick. He's in the co- he gets thrown out of the window. He gets arrested. He's in the cop car and he goes, "This is the cleanest cop car I've ever seen." And I'm like, "Should I be laughing that Beverly Hills cop cars are nicer than Detroit's cop cars? <laughs> like, is this the is this like a joke that actually you know people didn't know the difference between Fancyville and Detroit in the '80s?" I think what they were going for is is that he was just kind of like flippantly saying shit while being arrested. Like, I think that's what they were going for. That, um, well, I think you put it correctly. Eddie Murphy's entire role is flippantly saying shit and recklessly lying. <laughs> <laughs> so one, one joke that I actually did kind of appreciate during that scene is when he says, is like, uh, he's getting arrested for getting thrown out the window. And he's like, what, what's the penalty for falling out of a moving car? Jaywalking? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that. I think that's where uh, I did – I saw this movie when I was younger. You know, I didn't really like it then, and I didn't really revisit it later. It's only been really when I've been looking back into Martin Brest that I wanted to watch it. And I'm just like, there is so little going on in this movie. Like, I get it. Eddie Murphy, this was like the start of his movie stardom. For some, peop- for some reason, he clicked with people in the 80s with his, I don't know, fast-talking – reckless lying nonstop confidence having no consequences against him ever like maybe some people like that it makes the movie boring for me but what this movie really really turns me off with is as you mentioned if anything this movie is a music video because 
I think if, if I – when I edit this, I'm, I'm going to say it here so I remember. I think every seven minutes in our discussion, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break from our discussion and I'm going to play bum, 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 bum. It's incessant. That's the theme of this movie. And they play it – I kept a count. They play it nine times in this movie. And I think I missed one because I was making the note, oh, my God, I want to scratch my eardrums out from hearing it so many times. I, I counted at least eight. Oh, my God, yes. It's insane. There's at one point in the end of the movie it plays when they're, like, walking in to the art gallery, and then it stops so they can have a conversation, and then they all go and get in the car, and it starts again. And I'm like, fuck. Oh, my God, it's uh, incessant. <laughs> I might have only counted that as one, so the count might be nine. Okay, because... I, I definitely counted those as two, because there was a full discussion between them. Yeah. <laughs> ben, do you remember who wrote that theme song? I, I looked up some stuff about it. I know it's called Axel F. Yes, so what a... What a uh pretentious thing right to name your main theme after the main character of the movie but i'm, I'm looking for a very specific reference referential answer on who wrote the axel f theme song so i don't know who wrote it but i only know it from i only knew it from crazy frog oh okay that yes of course crazy frog mr let's sample things that's uh, of course what he does but uh to this was a while ago so you know i'm sure it, it slipped out of your your memory if this movie didn't push everything good out of your memory of trying to watch it, because it's, tra- it's truly a traumatic experience. I, I actually <laughs> didn't have depression before I watched this movie. And now, now I've, I've had depression for two years now because I watched this movie. The, I like that. <laughs> the true uh, writer of the Axel F theme song is the songwriter from Under the Silver Lake. This is one of the uh, things he plays on yes. his piano in that scene. And that makes this movie a little bit better but still, like, negative a million points. Like, I would think I would still give this movie a negative score out of 10. <laughs> I, I just kind of want to briefly mention some, like, specific things that, that I had issues with in this movie. Oh, yeah, go for it. Because I, like I said, I've been saying I hate this movie so much, and I definitely want to get into more of the bigger things on why I think this movie doesn't work. But, yeah, please, Ben, dive into some, some things that just bothered you. I'm so glad we're in agreement. I was actually worried when I was watching it last night. I was like... God, is Ben going to like this? Am I going to have to make fun of him for being simple-minded about action? And I, but then I, once you started, I was like, okay, no, I, I should have remembered. Like, Ben Ben knows what a true movie is and what a true movie isn't, you know? If we had Justin on this episode, Justin would have been like, yeah, Eddie Murphy! He says the N-word at a certain point. <laughs> so so that's actually the scene that I wanted to bring up is is where he does say the N-word. Uh, he shows up at a... At a like a Palm Beach hotel or something. Yep. And he is is doing the confidence shtick that you, that you mentioned already, where he has unwavering confidence uh, and he lies almost constantly. Yes. Which, in general, I don't, I don't have a problem with the character that does that. And to be honest, that might be like the one redeeming quality of this movie is that Eddie, Eddie Murphy... Like, no matter what the situation is, he lies. It, it doesn't, like, it doesn't appear to even matter most of the time why he's lying. Um, in this case, he's lying because he, he wants to get a hotel room despite not having a reservation. Yep. And 
once he's told that there is no that there is no hotel room for him that he doesn't have a reservation because the re- the name he gave is is made up or or because the the you know the reservation he mentioned is made up um he gets really loud and blames them for being racist yep yeah and i was like maybe it just didn't age well but i feel like that's not okay it's not okay to advertise that that some people do this it's not okay to do it it's not okay to put it in a movie and and the reason i say that is because sometimes racism actually is real it's not i mean sure in in america it's not all that common i think it's not as common as as people would like you to believe but it can happen so we should not belittle it in this way where you're just using it to get what you want um which i think is probably as common as actual racism in this country at this moment. This is very interesting, because I totally agree with that that point that you bring up, Ben. And yes, of course, you know, we're discussing a movie from 1984 in 2021 20, right. now, but still, I find it very interesting that it take it has taken you and I to hate one of the most popular movies in American cinema to actually be woke about something. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you're not wrong. That is a big problem I had as well, where he's like, I'm recklessly lying to make you feel bad with racism to get my way. And it's like, That's, that is not good. No matter if it's 84 or now or any time in between, that is not good. I, and there's like, and, and you know, like I said, some of it maybe just didn't age well. Maybe this movie was good in the 80s and it's not good now and people just can't tell the difference when they're watching it i i don't know uh there, there's a scene where a black cop is uh interacting with eddie murphy after he has lost rosewood and, and taggart oh yep yep and the, the the black cop that he's talking to has a pretty normal sounding american voice oh yes and eddie murphy is like it's gonna sound more natural and he does like a very racial impression <laughs> yes and when I heard it, I was like... <laughs> he, I, the only thing that was missing from that scene is, you gotta add jive turkey to the end of your sentences, brother. <laughs> like, that's how bad and over-the-top it is. <laughs> it's, I, I was listening to it, I was like, is he telling him that he's not black enough? Yeah, because I think he says something. Because the two cops, he, there's the one black cop and the one white cop. Eddie Murphy says to the black cop, you've been hanging out with him too long, and points okay. at the white cop. Morning, officers. What y'all, the second team? We're the first team. Yeah. We're not going to fall for a banana in the tailpipe. You're not going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe? <laughs> it should be more natural, brother. It should flow out like this. Look, man, I ain't falling for no banana in my tailpipe. See? That's more natural for us. You've been hanging out with this dude too long. And I'm just like, holy shit. Like... <laughs> so, I, like, I don't even think it's... I don't even think you're allowed to tell people they're not black enough. Any people. It doesn't matter who they are. You can't tell them they're not black enough. Yeah, but... They're black at all. <laughs> Eddie Murphy does in this movie. <laughs> well, and, and again, you know, I'm I'm applying my feelings from today to the 80s. Yep. Generally, I'm not... I don't think that we can judge this movie as being morally bankrupt because they did these things back then. I don't know what was okay back then. I want to make that very clear. Yes, I'm yes. not judging the whoever wrote this script or whatever. I'm just saying that this movie is not good today. I agree with you completely on the the racism angle because, yes, there was a very different – well, clearly, major audiences did not have an issue with it because it made so much goddamn money. I, so I, 
I guess that, that kind of hits on another problem I had with it, is if I'm supposed to believe that racism is this big of a problem, why is Eddie Murphy the lead of this movie? That's that's an interesting point. That's an interesting point. Um, uh, there is some stories I, behind why, how Eddie Murphy ended up in this role. It was originally supposed to go to white people, and they ended up with Eddie Murphy. Um, but... You know, I, okay. I I didn't really find any race stuff related to this movie. I think that's one of the banes of of a movie being so popular and so well loved as this movie is that people, as the years go by, will forget about it. You know, they they will they will give way to the problems it has because it is so well loved. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in you know 2021 that have nostalgia for this. Ben and I don't because '84 was before we were alive, but. I'm sure there were some people that grew up and they were like, wow, fast talking Eddie Murphy, good action at the start, good shootout at the end. Like, that's what I remember this movie for, not for, you know, the racial aspects of it. All all the stupid shit that happened in the middle. Yes. yes. (laughs) But, like, not only is Eddie Murphy the lead, his boss is black. And, like, various other cops are black. And nobody's being racist to any of them in any of the scenes that exist in the movie. But they're still playing up racism as if it's big enough that that it should be an issue to the point that I should see it in the rest of the movie, I would think. Yeah. I, I found that very strange as well, that it was just kind of like it was stemming from Eddie Murphy's character. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, uh, I'm glad you, you bring that up because that's I think that's a huge thing to talk about this movie today. But, you know, as you mentioned, which I agree with, you know, can we really say that this movie has moral problems because of the racism between the two times. It, it, that's an understanding point. You know, it's like, we don't like it today. Maybe the audiences in the 80s thought differently. Who knows? That is something that we can only really comment on today. I think in both the 80s and today, this movie is immoral, morally bankrupt, in the sense that the happy ending at the end is he gets all of the Beverly Hills by the book cops to lie for him and drink while they're on duty. Like, should I be happy at the end that the lieutenant is like, I'm going to lie for Eddie Murphy. And then at the end of the movie, John Ashton's like, one beer's not going to hurt us while we're cops. Like, the whole end of the movie is Eddie Murphy has corrupted the Beverly Hills people he's been with. And I'm like, am I supposed to be fucking happy about this? Like, Eddie Murphy should have died at the end because he's a liar and a cheat and all he wants to do is fucking, like, Get pull the wool over people's eyes. Like I don't like him as a character. I don't like that he corrupts everybody. So I have a, maybe a slightly different take on that. I kind of got the impression that he, like, <clears throat> a lot of the times that he did lie. I know I said that it was kind of without reason. That's not entirely true. A lot of the times he lied, it was to like cover for the police that he then previously made do something they shouldn't have done, like go yes. to a strip club. I, I guess what we're supposed to learn or what what they are supposed to have learned is that there are times where going not by the book is okay because the book is in the way problems you having an issue describing that is exactly my issue with the movie when i watched it last night i was like i think this movie is trying to say lying for your loved ones is okay because something like at the start of the movie if you remember when his friend mikey shows up and mikey's like Oh, I just got, I got out of jail six months ago. I had this job in Beverly Hills. They go to the bar. 
Um, Mikey gets like hustled and pool for a hundred bucks, which is just seems crazy to me in 1984. Like that had to be a good bit of money for a fucking bet on one shot of pool. Um, but there's that scene where Eddie Murphy and him have like the moment. Eddie Murphy's like, well, why didn't you turn me in when you got arrested? And Mikey's like, because I love you, man. And then at the end of the movie, after all the cops have lied for him, Eddie Murphy says to judge Reinhold Rosewood, I love you, man. And I'm like, so is that, like, is that, like, Ben, uh, uh, like, if I take this message of this movie to heart, or what I think the message is, you're going to, like, pop up at my door one day and go, Rob, him on the run. I killed a shitload of people, and they're after me. And I'm going to go, okay, I'm ready to lie for you, Ben. Like, <laughs> there's some moral problems with that. That's a moral quandary. I'm, of course it happens. That's a big thing of procedural shows these days. Like, a mother will always protect her son, that type of thing. But this yeah. movie is just like, no, I'm going to lie for everybody, all of my friends. And I'm like, that's a very strange idea. Well, yes, I, I agree with that. And, I, you know, that I that introduced some problems kind of early on whenever it's Mikey. Is that his the name? The Tan, Tandoni or whatever? Well, yeah, the Michael is. Tandoni of The Friend, yeah, who gets killed at the start. He pulls out the, the, the Deutsch marks that he stole. Yes. And Eddie Murphy's like, did you steal these? And then the guy's like, Mer. and then Eddie Murphy's like, never mind. I don't care. We're friends. I, I love that when we see him with the Deutsch marks, there's like a fucking massive stack of them. And then when he gets confronted by the goons of Victor Maitland in, in Detroit, he's like, I only took a few. I didn't notice that anyone would know they were missing. And it's like, bitch, you took a whole fucking box of them. <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, from what we see later, he definitely had multiple of the little books that yeah, you know, there were like yeah. three or four of them yes. in, one, in one crate. I, I do like that the uh, the goon that we see the most through the movie, the one who actually shoots Mikey at the beginning, is Jonathan Banks, who's probably yeah, best known um, as Mike from Breaking Bad. Yep. And I'm like, man, he was killing people back in, in the 80s. Like, then he's killing people back in the 2000s for Gus Fring. <laughs> his, his, uh, his nose might have grown some since then yeah well either his yeah his nose probably got bigger and his hair definitely got thinner <laughs> no i i really i i really like jonathan bakes i was surprised to see him he gets so that's another thing like eddie murphy endlessly confident lies all the time and apparently is like some kind of martial arts guru like yeah. he what we know about him is that he stole a car with his friend his friend got arrested he became a cop mm-hmm and now he's really good at martial arts, and he also tries to... He's not just a cop, he's a detective, actually, which you have to be promoted to. Yes. Like, you have to take exams and shit, if Law and Order taught me anything. <laughs> and he sets up fake stings using stolen evidence. Oh, and my then he, God. And then he risks his fake stings by haggling with people about money, because... It, no, it's... Uh, you're, you're exactly but, right, man. It's, it's, but it's almost it's, baffling. <laughs> <laughs> but then his chief is like, you're a really good cop, but you need to pay attention to the rules. It's like, we've seen no evidence of that. <laughs> yes, yes. That's one of my issues with this movie. I don't know for sure if this was, like, one of the movies that did it first. But so many elements of this movie with, like, the cop motif is so cliched now. Like, the opening of this movie is Eddie Murphy goes undercover without authorization, uses cigarettes evidence from a prior bust fucks things up amazingly, gets so much of the city of Detroit destroyed, and all he gets is yelled at and a second chance. And I'm like, this is, this is, that was my big issue with Fringe, the TV show, when that was on. Like, every episode of Fringe is, here's the case, let's investigate. 
the, the Olivia, the detective, realizes what she has to do, goes to Colonel Broyles and says, can I do this? He's go- he goes, no. She does it anyway, succeeds, and at the end of the episode, he goes, oh, you, and there's never any consequences. And it's like, that does not make for a good story. Like, Eddie Murphy never faces any consequences. Like, by, even by the end of the movie, when he gets shot, I'm like, I fucking grazed him in the shoulder. Like, he has, and he's still able to just fucking blow everybody away after he gets shot, too. <laughs> um, I do I do want to point out in the cigarette scene, he mentions that, that what, are they Lucky Strikes, I think? Yeah, Lucky Strikes. Yeah, Lucky Strikes. That they're the kids' favorite cigarettes. That is a good little touch. He's like, oh, he's like, this is one of the kids' favorite cigarettes, you know? And he's like, look at the federal tax stamp. You can't beat that. Like, you can't get no cleaning in this here. Look here. He's a very popular cigarette with the children. You know what this is in here? You know what this is? It's a federal tax stamp. You can't beat that. You can't get no cleaning in that. Talk to me. Tell me something. I, I get why Eddie Murphy was and still is a movie star. Like, he has such a charisma about him in his performances but oh, like, oh he, my god, it's so annoying when that's the whole fucking movie. He did like a lot of impressions really well throughout the movie. Like he he impersonates, uh, you know, I guess a gay person, stereotypically named Ramon. Ramon, who has <laughs> who has HS ten, not HS feet. That's HSX, I think. Um, it's like like the Final Fantasy series. You go from H. You get H I, I really like HS, HSX. You know. <laughs> The first um, one with full motion cutscenes. <laughs> oh god, full motion cutscenes are herpes. Um, <laughs> oh god, you, I lost my train of thought. You fucking full motion cutscene me to death. Uh, so I was, I was definitely getting at the. I think we were talking oh, about that oh, opening he does scene. Impressions. Yeah, he does yeah, impressions. impressions he, and then, he does. Yeah. I mean, he, he he does the stereotypical black guy when he's telling the other black guy that he's not black enough. And, like, that's a good impression, I guess. And, I mean, he does, like, some decent impressions in the movie. He, like, he definitely debuts some of his skill. Like you said, it's not surprising that he went on to be successful. It's just surprising that this movie did. Yes, yeah, I think, yeah. Because we talked about that. We talked a lot about Eddie Murphy when we did uh, Trading Places with Chris. And I think that movie makes it clearer that he uh, he has, like, good comedic, ability this movie though doesn't let him flourish i think in his comedic ability i think that there's so much that is trying to be comedy but the rest of the movie doesn't let it actually land or anything like that you know we've we've mentioned the uh, axel f song and how often it gets played that's not the only parts of this movie that made me think of it as a music video sure sure in the first chase scene and i have problems with this just because of physics the guys (laughs) the guys driving a cigarette a, a diesel trailer attached to another diesel trailer attached to a diesel full of cigarettes the back gate is open yep he's swerving crazily and stuff doesn't fall out for like five blocks or something yeah until he like actually hits something or makes a rough turn we see some bunch of cigarettes yeah. fall out yeah and, and eddie murphy at one point we see i mean what we see what, what is supposed to be him like hanging from this like metal trellis yep. flying out of the back of the truck this whole time there's some song from the 80s playing over this yes yeah it, it is it's it's literally an action like montage basically maybe not montage action music video no, you're right action music video is the best way to put it <laughs> And I, I believe the thought I had was, is, am I watching a music video? Well, because it's so long too. Like it's not, it's not just a small part of that song. Like it's something about neutron dances or some shit, yeah. and, and being happy, and like happy about being a neutron or whatever the fuck the, the song's about. No, and it is so long, and there's so much just like 
you see the truck barreling through cars. You see cop cars hitting other cop cars. You see things getting cut off. You see it's just so much, like, carnage. And I, that's the thing I, I do kind of know. Like, people love that shit back in, like, the 70s and 80s in American cinema. They wanted okay. to see, like, stuff you couldn't see in real life. Or if you did okay. see in real life, it would lead to hospital bills and death. Okay. Like, like that sure. I get, I mean, you know. And that you, makes sense. If, if you're watching an old movie, like, say, in the 80s, it's going to be like, I want to see that car blow up, you know? That's a fun thing in a movie. But this, the opening scene of this takes it to... Uh, 10 million where it's just like we're going to destroy the entire like few blocks of the city of Detroit they have that whole thing where a fucking like transit bus spins around in the middle of a road and it just holds on it for like three seconds yeah it's uh, and the whole time the neutrons learning to dance or whatever the hell <laughs> I don't I, know what that song is but you, I you would should believe exactly I will but I believe exactly what you say and it's hard to say It's uh, the Jimmy Neutron dance or whatever you say. <laughs> <laughs> like the scene leading up to that where he's like, quote unquote, haggling with the uh, the people in the truck. Eddie Murphy does a good fast talking and like I'm trying to get you to do something. You know, it's kind of strange. Like he walks from the back of the truck. He's like, what's going on? here? You're taking too long. Blah, 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 yep. blah. And he's just like he walks around him and then he like keeps talking and sits down. Yeah, and I was like, "Why did you even come over here?" Yeah, Eddie. Well, well, I, I, I agree with you there. There's this certain sense of like Eddie Murphy needing to move. I've always thought in a lot of his movies, like he's a very even in his stand-up specials, like he moves so much. And I'm, always, it's really weird. Maybe that was a time of like the '70s and '80s, like classic stand-up comedians. They moved a lot because I know Richard Pryor did. But like today, you don't really see people move a lot. They have their stool or they have their stand, and maybe they'll walk around. But Eddie Murphy's always been like very in motion. But I I do have to say, this is one of the things why I... The best part of this movie is Martin Brest, is the directing. Because in that opening scene, I love the fact where it's just a static shot from the back of the truck. Eddie Murphy on the right, Criminal on the left. They're haggling over prices. And you see all the way down at the alley, the cop car come by, stops, backs up, drives in. Like, you, it's unbroken shot of just seeing this cop car come to them. And I'm like, that's really cool. Like, that's a good setup for them to be like, Eddie Murphy's just like, blah, 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 blah. And then this cop is just eventually coming upon them. Like, I, that's what I love about this movie, that there's actually some very good directing until it turns into a music video. <laughs> and, you know, I, I mentioned that he, that he like, haggles with, with the criminals. So he's asking for five grand, grand. The guy tries to give him two. Yep. And, and later he says, if I had taken two, he would have known I was a cop. Mm-hmm. Like, why does it matter at that point? He took, like, you made the sale. Yep, exactly. And that's what yeah. matters for the setup. So, like, it was, like, while I was watching it, I was like, I'm pretty sure Eddie Murphy's a cop in this movie. <laughs> does he become a cop after being a failed criminal? Like, <laughs> that's a, yeah, and, that's and a good then, point. And then we find out he was a cop that, at the time, and I was like, he's a dumb cop. Like, he, he's... Yeah, well, well, yeah, in, in terms of people watching, I think us watching this and thinking about the movie, we go, wow, Eddie Murphy is a dumb cop. But from the logic of the movie, he is the greatest, most undefeatable cop in the universe. 
It's just because he's confident. Yep. This movie borders on a superhero movie. Like, Eddie Murphy might as well be a superhero because he can charm everybody into whatever he wants them to do. He can get thrown through windows. He can fly around on the back of a car in motion. (laughs) I mean, he's basically the guy from Jessica Jones. He can just be like, (laughs) do this stuff. Give me a match. Oh, yep. Yep. The power of suggestion. Exactly. Yep. Well, okay. Hold on. This is just a, a complete tangent. Maybe we cut it out. Maybe we don't. <laughs> Have I ever told you my biggest problem with Jessica Jones? Maybe. It's been a long time since we talked about Jessica Jones. But is it that uh, – I know my biggest problem was that in the first episode I said, make him talk through a phone or put earplugs in. Will that make his power work? And then that's how they beat him in the 10th episode. I, I'm sure we've talked about this. Okay. Yeah. So my, my biggest problem is they never fucking tried earplugs. Yes. Like it took them so- – they're like, yes, earpl- we, we learned that it's not the sound, it's the virus or whatever yes, the fuck. Yes, yes. And earplugs wouldn't have worked, but why didn't you fucking try? Yes, absolutely. If you can't hear them, anyway, all right, we can get off the topic. What is, is, what is who, uh, what's his name? David Tennant plays the villain. Kill, Kill Gore? Kill Gore. Kill Gore, okay. Yeah. I always want to say Killmonger now from Black Panther, but it's Kill Gore. Uh, that being said, Jessica Jones is pretty decent. If you haven't seen it, Well, she, ju- I mean, Jessica Jones... Jones just wants to drink alcohol and fuck Luke Cage in those first three episodes, and that's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God, Jessica Jones. Uh, uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, so okay. I, I think this is, this is a good uh, – once again, like I said, I'm glad we are, we are in agreement that this movie is such a fucking nightmare, and we don't really understand how it got so popular. I would love to talk to somebody who, like, was, I don't know, a teenager when this movie came out and be like, what was the time period? Like, well, what was your life like that made you latch on to this? And and like spend it made like once again it made three hundred fifteen million dollars, that's insane. But we do have to talk about some of whenever we discuss a movie on Cinemodities that is this big, and this is a huge movie. There's so much information on it, and there's so many retrospectives that you know even up till like this year you can find articles where it's like oh you know people that make movies today that have been in the industry that were working on Beverly Hills Cop they still get interviewed they still get asked about it and um since i want to start with Martin Brest because he's of course the the subject of this series there is a very very famous legend which has some backing from people in interviews that uh, i guess for context this movie came after going in style and between Going in Style and Beverly Hills Cop, Martin Brest was actually hired to direct War Games, which was the Matthew Broderick movie where he, like, hacks NORAD and stuff like that, which is another very popular movie. Martin Brest is actually the reason he was the person that cast Matthew Broderick for that movie and really kind of kicked off his career going through the 80s and 90s. Um, never forget, just like we talked about John Landis as a manslaughterer, Matthew Broderick is also a manslaughter. He killed two people, vehicular manslaughter in Ireland in the early 2000s. Don't forget that, okay? Don't forget that celebrities kill people. Yes, Ben and I are wagging our fingers at the audience. Don't forget that celebrities killed people and nearly got away with it. Anyway, Martin Brest gets fired from War Games, and I think it's Bradham that eventually directs it. Um, But when Martin Brest got fired, it was because he had a lot of ideas. Martin Brest, as we talked about in our Gili episode, he's a very demanding and exacting director. Like, he wants things done his way. He really is like a very much a control freak over his movies, which makes a lot of good directors like a David Lynch, like a, um, a David Fincher, like a Stanley Kubrick, you know, things like that. Uh, very different from what we have today of like the Paul Feigs and um, 
the guy who directed Ghostbusters 2016, and like uh, Ortsy and Kersman, who just go, talk! There's no script, just talk, you know? It's very different, and I think that makes a better director. Anyway, after Martin Brest gets fired from War Games, he's kind of, you know, feeling a little down on himself because he really respects his work and wants it to go right. And the studio system also saw him as a little bit of uh, damaged goods because he got fired from that. But uh, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, who produced this movie and were trying to get it made, Beverly Hills Cop, they really wanted Martin Brest. And they kept going to Martin Brest, and they were saying things like, Martin, we want you to direct this movie. We think you got what we, you know, exactly what we want for this whole you know, comedy action motif. And Martin Brest kept turning down the movie. He was like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. i got to find something that I want. Until they bothered him so much, and this is where the legend comes in, that Martin Brest decided to flip a coin to make his decision of directing this movie. The coin flip tells him to direct the movie, he makes an ungodly amount of money, frames the quarter, and it is hanging in his office for the next 20 years. That's the legend. Some people have corroborated it in interviews, never Martin Brest fully, but I love that legend that it's like, as Zach and I have discussed in the last two weeks of this series, there's a, there's a big distinction. Martin Brest and David Lynch start almost the same way, making very strange, very grim, dark, independent movies. David Lynch makes Dune, it's a flop, and David Lynch goes, I never want to work in the studio system again. Martin Brest makes this, makes him millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, and goes, okay, this is, this is what my career is now, because I can make fucking money. So that's a, I always have to bring that up, it's a very interesting story. But apparently, Martin Brest didn't want to direct this movie, it came down to a coin flip. Very interesting in the annals of Hollywood. Um, I'm, I'm assuming, Ben, you have no story to uh, add to that. <laughs> Ben's like, yeah, I know Martin uh, Brest. Uh, yeah, I've seen that coin. <laughs> I actually yeah, spent I actually it. Grew up, I actually grew up with Martin Brest. I, the only thing I can say is, is uh, I wish it hadn't. Yes. I, that's what my kind of thing was, is I wish Martin Brest stuck with his own kind of weird films. Because like I said, Hot Tomorrows and Going in Style, there's so much about death, which is an in- interesting concept to me. I wish he would have stuck with that stuff rather than just, you know, oh, funny action comedy. And Midnight Run, while it's very similar like an action comedy, it's actually a fun movie, I think. So, you know, it's, it's one of those what-ifs, which is probably why I'm so interested in it. But probably the more interesting story on Beverly Hills Cop, the one that if you ever, like, go to Google and type in Beverly Hills Cop, you get those articles where it's like, 10 things you didn't know about Beverly Hills Cop. Before Eddie Murphy was signed on to play Axel Foley, it was going to go to Sylvester Stallone. And here's the thing. When Sylvester Stallone was uh, picked up for this movie, he himself did a rewrite of the script and wanted almost all of the comedy removed. In the mid-2000s, when they interviewed Stallone about this, he said something like, my version of the Beverly Hills Cop script was imagine the whole movie being the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan like the storming the beach of Normandy. Like, Stallone wanted this to be a gritty, hardcore action movie. Like, with death and, like, mo- like a lot of craziness. So that's Why what Stallone Why did he wanted. just do a different movie? <laughs> well, he ended up going on to different movies because the... So this, this is the interesting part. Of course we know Stallone did not end up being in this movie, and they didn't accept his script rewrites. Um, the, the official reason is that the studio deemed that Stallone's ideas were too expensive. They were going way over budget. 
And they said, no, Sylvester, we want you to do this script with these producers, you know, this stuff. And Stallone said, well, okay, I'll go do something else. There's some rumors, though, that are very, very interesting. The rumor, according to an interview with Stephen Burkhoff, the guy who plays Victor Maitland, the villain in this movie, he has gone on record a few times and said that Stallone left this movie over a disagreement on what brand of orange juice they were stocking in his trailer. I don't know if Ben knows a lot about the history of Sylvester Stallone and, like, his movie career. This is actually believable. Like, he's one of the original, like, I don't know if Ben knows what, I think it's Mariah Carey, like, whenever she has, she goes on tour, her whole thing is she wants M&Ms, like, in her green room before she goes on, but there cannot be any green M&Ms. Like, she will get furious if they're green M&Ms. Like, she literally has people pick out the green M&Ms. So this was like Sylvester Stallone. He's one of those, you know, very demanding, nitpicky celebrities. Of course, when you're, like, big action man, you get some leeway with that. But apparently they didn't want to stock his brand of orange juice in his trailer, so he left. That's according to Stephen Burkhoff. According to Don Simpson, who's one of the producers of this movie... Don Simpson has gone on record saying when Sylvester Stallone was getting really up in arms about the wanting this to be action and not comedy, Don Simpson told Sylvester Stallone that he could get him into a European medical trial for a new erectile drug that, quote, according to Don Simpson, would give Steve, Sylvester Stallone super erectile capabilities. And this was what Don Simpson said he convinced Sylvester Stallone of so he would leave the film and go to Europe to gain super erectile capabilities. That one is much less believable because I think Don Simpson is a goofball and I think he was just saying nonsense in that interview. But how can you not bring that up that you have big action man, Mr. Testosterone of the 70s and 80s. Someone says, hey, Steven, you ever want super erectile capabilities? Capability. And he goes, sign me up. <laughs> I have to ask you, Ben, because this was never – this, of course, I think is, is not true. But I wanted to ask you, could you think of an example? What is a super erectile capability? Like it's like you can have an erection for longer than four hours and not have to call a doctor? <laughs> well, so what came to mind first for me is, you know, that, that scene in Mallrats where they're talking about kryptonite condoms and, <laughs> and uh, Superman, like, blowing his load straight through Lois Lane? Yes. Yeah, that, I'm, I'm imagining blowing a little thing of shotgun. Like, that's a super erectile <laughs> capability. Wouldn't that be a super ejaculatory ability, though? Uh, I mean, it depends on what causes it. I think it would be the erection that causes the, okay, okay. the ejaculate to be that strong. I, get, I was thinking more of, like, you, he could be better at getting an erection on command. Like just What be, if he could be better be at like, losing an erection an... <laughs> Like... He, he, you know, it's like he can, he can not only get, but also lose erections at will. Ooh, that would be a superpower. <laughs> I'm sure an X-Men has that. <laughs> like, can you imagine how impressive that is? Like you're naked with a woman and you're just like, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> This just make me think there should be like an X-Men comic where some kid has that power and he's like going through puberty in school and he has to get up to give a speech. And he, like, has a reflex erection because he's going through puberty, and he's able to just, like, get it down immediately. <laughs> no, I, I had to bring that story up because as absurd as it sounds, that is what Don Simpson said in an interview once about Sylvester Stallone. 
funny. Oh, God. Yeah, so uh, uh, the cinema audience, uh, cinemaudience at gmail.com, or you can join in on the subreddit. Maybe I'll make a post. What are super erectile capabilities? This is something we should brainstorm. <laughs> so so that that's the there's some other background on this movie, of course, it always talks about well who else do they want to play this role? But of course they settled on Eddie Murphy, which I think they were all happy about because it made them so much money. But that, Ben, is the background of how this became a Martin Brest movie, according to a coin flip, supposedly, and uh how we got Eddie Murphy instead of Sylvester Stallone. If Sylvester Stallone was in this movie, oh shit, it would be an action movie through and through. Sylvester Stallone does not do comedy well. <laughs> so you mentioned that he wanted to take the comedy out of the movie. Yeah. I thought you were going to tell me that they accidentally kept some of his script. <laughs> well, from our perspective, that that makes some sense. Yes, could you imagine Sylvester Stallone in the back of that cop car? Hey yo. This is a nice cop car. And it's just like, that's not even part of the script. That's just his ad lib where he actually <laughs> thinks it's a nice cop car. <laughs> hey, uh, I've never been in a cop car this nice. It's, uh... Oh, my God. <laughs> we yes. get it, Sylvester. I'm not a yeah. huge fan of Sylvester Stallone, but, you know, he has his place. He's like a, another version of Arnold, big muscle-bound man from that time, same time period. Uh, mm. So, so yeah. Um, but that that was the little background I wanted to give on Beverly Hills Cop. And like I said, also, if anybody really likes this movie, well, one, why? <laughs> Two, go to Google. You can find so many articles about some, like, who had the idea for this movie, or the scriptwriter, and blah, blah, blah. And that's the stuff I just don't care about um, because there's only so much I can really dive into with this movie uh, because it's, it's – well, I do I, – I don't usually get to do it on Cinemodities. It was fun when I rewatched this for this recording. Most of the time, I was doing my research into the background while I was watching it. That usually doesn't get to happen. I usually have to separate them. But this movie, it just gets so, so bland at a certain point. Are, yeah, I was going to say, are we going to talk about how certain parts of this movie are just boring as fuck? That, that is exactly where I wanted to go next. Because I think, as much as we've just said... That this movie is a music video or a series of music videos. There are long stretches of this film with no score. It's just characters talking. I feel like there are long stretches of this film with just Eddie Murphy walking funny. Oh, that that too, absolutely. <laughs> I think there might be a little music in the background, but the one yeah, that really sure. stood out to me in this this last um, viewing was there's the scene where Eddie Murphy goes to confront Maitland at the like country club. That's when he does his uh, impression. He's like, Ramon just came from the clinic and I have herpes simplex 10. Like It starts there, and then we get the scene where I think he has to go back to the cops— because he gets arrested at the at the Harlow Club for disturbing the peace. He has to go back to the police station. He tells all of he's like I think Maitland's doing bad things, but I don't I can't prove it yet. He and then he gets like chewed out by um all the police people and then Judge Reinhold has to take him back to the um the hotel and get him out of town. But he convinces Judge Reinhold to go back to the art club so they can talk to girl in the movie. And then they go to the uh warehouse to find the shipment of the drugs. From this first scene, from when he gets to the, the um, club, all the way until they start the car trip to the warehouse, there is no music. Oh, it is yeah. just ambient sound of, like, footsteps and talking 
and doors opening and closing. And it is the strangest fucking thing because it makes it so dry. And then guess what? When they get in the car to go to the warehouse, what do we hear? Bum, 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 bum. And I'm like, no! But honestly, on a filmmaking perspective, that is so strange to have no music for that long of a stretch, especially during the club scene, which has his martial arts experience. The what should be a little sour or somber music because he's getting kicked out of town by like the chief of detectives. And then what should be like the rousing, like, here we go, we're going to fight the bad guy when he convinces Judge Reinhold to be on his side and not kick him out of town. Like, put anything! But there's nothing. It's quiet. That's such a strange decision. And it makes that whole, like, 15, 20-minute chunk of the movie boring as hell. I could see doing something like that if if you were... I mean, if if you were creating a certain kind of suspense that you didn't want to use, like, eerie, creepy music, and you just wanted to be like... But that's not what is happening. No, no. No, you're right. I think we've talked about it before. I don't remember where it was, but... I've definitely brought up a lot on this podcast, I know at least one time with you, where I was like, I wish they would have removed the score. Like, I wish it would have just been these noises in the tenseness of this scene. This is the total fucking opposite, because there's no tension, because Eddie Murphy can never face any fucking consequences in this movie. Like, even even the club scene, where he, like, he martial arts Jonathan Banks onto the buffet table, and then he sits down with Victor Maitland, And I'm like, okay, what the fuck is his plan? And his plan is to say, hey, I know you killed my friend. I'm gonna get you. And I'm like, what? I'm like, that's it? Like, he already knows you're trying to get him from the first time you ran into him. Like, why are you doing this again? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely expected him to do something more, more thoughtful, I guess. Yep. To have some kind of plan, but he totally did not. No, it, it makes absolutely no goddamn sense and i think the only point of that scene is to later on give jonathan banks more animosity towards eddie murphy because when he confronts him in the warehouse scene he's like are you still mad at me and jonathan banks gets to reveal that he was the one who killed mikey at the beginning and i think if i if i'm not mistaken i do think that scene in the uh what did we call this place a club after he's they, they call it the Harrow Club, yeah. The Harrow Club. So I, I do think at that point, Eddie Murphy calls Jonathan Banks cuz. Yes. Oh, yes, that's right, yeah. And later, Jonathan Banks calls him cuz. And the subtitle spells it C-O-Z, which oh. apparently is how we shorten the word. Oh, cousin. boy, isn't that exciting, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that as far as I can tell, that's the only point of that scene. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I can't believe I'm saying this. But, like, actually, this is something that, like, the Marvel movies did correctly. And Ben knows my thoughts on the Marvel movie. But at the start of Winter Soldier, you know, when Anthony Mackie or uh, Birdman, Falcon, meets Steve Rogers, they're, they're, like, running around the Washington Monument. And every time Steve Rogers passes, Anthony Mackie goes on your left. And Anthony Mackie gets, keeps getting pissed off because he knows he's not a fucking superhero. So he can't run faster than Captain America. But then at the end of Endgame, when everybody shows up, like, and the portal's open, Anthony Mackie comes out and says to Captain America, on your left. And it's like, that's, I'm like, wow! Like, that's how you write something! And this movie tried to do it, but with cuz. 
how how much time is between those? The on your left thing? Oh, from Winter Soldier to Endgame. So that has oh to be like God. that has to be like seven or eight movies. Wow. And it that's... still fucking works because you because Marvel's actually set up that you know these characters. And that's right. the one thing I have said before. Even though I dislike all of the Marvel movies pretty much, they they're able to construct a universe. That's why they're so successful. They've constructed that yes. universe and you know those relationships between the characters. Here, right. I'm just like, nobody fucking cares about Jonathan Banks and Eddie Murphy. Like one's the good guy, one's the bad guy. Like they're gonna shoot each other. Like that's it. Like we know that. Like we don't need any more animosity. Just have them say, Eddie Murphy, I killed your friend at the start. That's all. The, that's all he needs. Uh, you're not wrong. <laughs> you're not wrong. Yeah, I, I don't know. Overall, this, as you said, you got to do some of your research while you were watching it. I had the hardest time paying attention to this. Okay. Movie. Okay. Well, I, I guess that that's something you mentioned earlier. We should get to. Um, so was this? Was this? You said, as as our audience knows, you like to watch these movies twice. Is this something that you're just like, I don't want to watch it twice, or you tried to, and you were like, what the hell's the point? <laughs> no, I put it on again, and I and I found halfway through it, I was working instead of watching it. Okay, okay. You're you're not wrong. I don't. I think even if you did watch it a second time, like maybe not fully paying attention to it, whatever, the, you can't really gain anything. There's nothing no. more to be gained from this movie. Eddie Murphy's invincible. He's He's never going to have anything bad happen to him. Everybody's going to lie for him. And that's it. That's the whole fucking point of the movie. And it's it's so vacuous. I, there, so, again, you know, one of the jokes kind of that landed at the end, Eddie Murphy's like, basically, I'm going to get fired when I go back to Detroit because I interfered with this investigation. Could you lie to my captain and tell him <laughs> that you asked me to or something? Yes. And, and the guy's like, no. And he's like, oh, that's not a big deal. I'll just stay here and open a business. Yeah, he wants and to be like a private like, investigator or something. Yeah. And then the guy's like, just kidding. I actually will lie. And <laughs> that, it was great. He was just like, I don't want Axel, Axel Foley near me. Yep. Go away. Yep. So that was pretty good. That landed all right for me. Okay, okay. So there, the is, there is a Beverly Hills Cop 2. There is also a Beverly Hills Cop 3. Oh, my God. And the, la- it- the last bit that I heard is that uh, in 2016, Netflix bought the rights for Beverly Hills Cop and wants to make a show. Which has not wow. happened yet. But I, I have never seen two or three. I've never watched them. <laughs> wow. Are they, can, could they possibly be as bad? Like, is it Eddie Murphy again? Uh, is in, it the same? I'm pretty, uh, sure it's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's, he's in two and three. Uh, the only thing I know about... Th- well, I do know that this movie was a financial success and a critical success. Like, people loved this movie. There's someone... There was a reporter, I forget from where, because I, like, I couldn't even bring myself to write it down for the research... When this movie came out, like, film critics were saying this is a flawless movie, which is, like, I, like I'm baffled. Like, I mentioned at the start, like, how many things this gets lauded for, which baffles me. I know 2 was financially successful, but not a big uh, commercial hit, so it didn't make as much money. Uh, well, it made a lot of money, but the critics didn't love it, and I think 3 was, like, bad in both cases. Okay. 3 is directed... By John Landis, the manslaughter who directed Trading Places. So that's another reason I don't want to watch that movie. But I had to bring that up, Ben, that I don't know even... I have no fucking clue what 2 and 3 are even about. So I can't even tell you if they go back to, like, Beverly Hills or anything like that. And I did not look into it either. (laughs) The Rotten Tomatoes rating for 3 is 9%. (laughs) See, I bet if we watched that one, we would love it more than this one. Because it's, like, so bad we can laugh at it. Maybe. That's possible. Rotten Tomatoes for Beverly Hills Cop 2 is, uh, Hill, yeah, Beverly Hills Cop is 47%. Okay, okay. 
and now I'm curious about the first one. Oh, it's it's going to be fucking like 110%, I bet. 80, 83%. Oh, my God. That's fucking insane, Ben. 82% audience score, 83% on the tomato meter. I think that's our thesis for this episode. Why the hell is this movie so fucking popular? 96% soul, whatever the fuck that means. Uh, oh, no, that I'm sorry. That's the new movie, Soul. I thought that they were saying <laughs> this movie had soul. If you were about to tell me that Rotten Tomatoes added a soul meter, I would have gone to Rotten Tomatoes for, like, the first time in ten years and checked out the soul meter of movies I know. <laughs> Uh, no, it, it does not appear that that's the case. Soul's just doing very well. Uh, can we take a quick tangent? Because I have more I want to say about Beverly Hills Cop. There's a few scenes we didn't touch on. But a quick tangent. Some people, Soul was just like Wonder Woman 1984. They dropped it on Disney Plus on Christmas. And it's a Disney Pixar movie, which, you know, always get a lot of attention. One of my friends who loves the Pixar stuff was like, oh, Rob, you should check out Soul. Like, Soul is like a music-based Pixar movie. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, aren't there a lot of, like, musicals and Pixar's? And like, he's like, yeah, yeah, but no, this is, like, actually about a musician and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. I should look into Soul because I really didn't know a lot about it other than that it was coming out. I watched the trailer, and I physically vomited because the art looks so fucking bad. Like, the artwork for Soul looks atrocious. And this is something I wanted to bring up because, Ben, I know you've been getting into more of the artwork. We love our Adventure Time 2D stuff. This is, like disgusting the character styles and animation for soul i thought i wanted to pick your brain on that this might go with the depending how long this is i'm gonna put this at the end of the episode oh god ben's facial expression ben is now ben has muted his mic he is uncontrollably vomiting on his webcam i can see the vomit and no longer him no it's disgusting isn't it the the ghosts look okay but this kid looks crazy i i don't it does not look good i think I I don't the the main guy doesn't look too bad like that's not but the but his kid is scary looking and like I don't mind the ghosts I don't I may not hate the art as much as you do Rob I think the art's okay <laughs> I I I uncontrollably was vomiting so I did not watch it is what I'm saying <laughs> I, I think the art's pretty okay oh god it, it turned me off so bad Have you ever seen uh, that Netflix show Big Mouth. Uh, I've heard of it, yeah. That, it, that, this reminded me of that artwork, and that artwork is probably worse than this. They're both equally bad, I think. Oh, the the Big Mouth artwork is pretty rough. I'll give you that. And they want us to stare at that for, like, 25 minutes straight? Like, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's just uh, a style, you know? This, they picked a style that didn't require much skill. Now, now that's that's where you're getting at, you know. Yes, yes. Especially Pixar with their computer animation. You make you make what three, four frames these days, and everything else just gets tweaked a little bit for multiple different characters. I, I do have to say, it is actually harder to draw some of these crazy looking things than you might think. Oh, sure, sure. So, despite the fact that this is unappealing to look at, I'm sure that it does take skill. A but certain type of skill, of yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> and and to have thought this up, like. To think up something that nobody wants to look at, that's... <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, we, we will have to... It's going to be really good, I think, uh, after uh, something that I also mentioned earlier this year on Cinemodities. After we pl- pummel and plow and force our way through Zach's fort year of pre-9-11 movies, we will be doing the Henrik, Henry Selick series... And that'll be great to talk about the artwork, because that is the stop-motion movies of The Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach, and Coraline, which are absolutely beautiful to look at. So it'll be great to talk about artwork then, for sure. 
Coraline is a fucking amazing movie to look at. Like, I could watch Coraline on mute without subtitles and just be enthralled by the, the beauty of that stop motion. I love that stuff. Stop motion has never been my favorite. Um, I'm not a huge fan of this kind of clay style. Oh, okay, okay. I've always loved that, yeah. So, yeah, maybe we have different tastes. Yeah, that's why I said it'll be good to talk about that artwork then. Absolutely. I guess speaking of art, something I wanted to talk about this movie, we have an art gallery in Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, yeah. And I have to say I think my favorite character in the movie is Serge who at the end of every sentence goes, don't be stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that character was fun, where he's like, he he goes to the other guy and he's like, can you tell Miss Jenny that Ahmed is here? Axel. Axmed? Axel. Axel. (laughs) Axel, can you tell her that Foley is here? (laughs) Yes. And then when they go back and he shows up and Eddie Murphy's like, can you get my boy Rosewood an espresso? And he's like, would you like a lemon twist? And he's like, yeah, if it wouldn't be too much trouble. Oh, no problem. Don't be stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That little dude is such a nice touch in this movie. He's funnier than everybody else in the film, I think. (laughs) Definitely. Uh, Although I do want to ask, who drinks lemon with espresso? That's a good question. Maybe that's a California Beverly Hills thing. I don't know. (laughs) Because I certainly don't put lemon anywhere near my coffee. (laughs) Any coffee. (laughs) Why would you? It's just more acid. Yeah, exactly. But speaking of um, the the art, that art gallery, I love that like installation that Eddie Murphy laughs at. It's all the people bandaged in white at a dinner table and there's heads rotating on plates around them. I was like, that's the one part of the movie where I'm like, this is that little segment. It's not even a scene. We just see it for so quickly. Like that is much more akin to Martin Brest's earlier movies. Where there's okay. a weirdness to it. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, this is cool. I want to see a whole movie about that. But it devolves into Eddie Murphy doing his stupid laugh. <laughs> Who buys one of these things? Oh, another? I just, I don't be stupid. I sold one yesterday. How much does it go for? <laughs> $130,000. No shit. No shit. Don't be stupid. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my fucking God, kill me. Kill me. Like, I am tempted to say I would have stood up and walked out of the theater. If that, if I saw this in theaters, I think. <laughs> the only thing missing from that interaction, the his laugh is 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 obnoxious, like really fake sounding. Yes, yes. And uh, I, I'm sure that was a choice, and maybe it was even a directional choice, and it was just that was one that became one of Eddie Murphy's sticks in his career in the eighties, like that was his laugh. And I think we can combine our collective memory to see if this is correct, but I don't think he did that if at all a lot in trading places. No, I don't think so. Like maybe if he did it, it was once or twice and we don't remember it, you know? I I definitely don't recall the thought, like why the fuck is he laughing like that at any point during that movie? (laughs) But yeah, this, this becomes part of his shtick, like in his stand up and stuff. And like, Oh god. Yeah, Maybe it was something he decided to do. Oh yeah, it, it def- I think it definitely was an Eddie Murphy decision and um it's it's just kind of crazy because I agree with you. It is so fucking obnoxious. It's bad. Like I I would like if if I was hanging out with somebody and they were doing that, I would be like, "Listen, you got to stop, okay? Like there's not a lot of stuff that I, I'm really serious about." 
but you got to stop, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, this is not okay to do. <laughs> For sure. Like, I'm, t- I'm not coming from a place of I find it annoying. I'm coming from a place of I'm trying to help you as a friend. Don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> if that's your real laugh, stop laughing. Don't find things funny anymore. Oh God! Oh God! You'll make more friends not laughing. So, so uh, I I love Serge in the art gallery scene. I mean, other characters we have. We talked about Jonathan Banks. Uh, Eddie Murphy's in there. I mean, God, everybody else is so vacuous. Girl in movie. Uh, she she nothing. You know, I, that's one of my one of the things that people always say is like, can you name? Like as a trivia question, it's like, can you name the actress who played the love interest in Beverly Hills Cop? No one can fucking do it because she's not a character. Is and she a love interest? kind of i mean barely the movie wants it to be but i honestly i forgot she even got kidnapped until maitland comes out with a gun to her head at the end of the movie like i forgot eddie murphy was trying to rescue her (laughs) i i did not think of her as a love interest i definitely thought she was just his friend she you're right the way that i think that's another problem with this movie is that of all the cliche stuff it has, like the, um, you know, stay away from this case, Axel, and all that stuff, you know, it really doesn't lean too much into the love interest. But she kind of plays it a little bit. Like, when they go to the hotel room together, she, like, lays on the bed all sexily and, like, laughs at his jokes when he sends, like, the late supper down to the cops and stuff like that. So there's there's a little bit there, I think. But maybe you're right. Maybe that's why I think she's vacuous, because she's not even a love interest. She's just, like... I want to go to the warehouse with you guys. Yeah, and it's like, no. His, and she's like, I don't care. <laughs> she says, right. And she is involved. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, she's vacuous. I mean, I even, well, she like disappears in the warehouse scene. Like she's, they're doing whatever. And then it's like Eddie Murphy's doing stuff. And then she's just not there. Anymore. Yeah. It, it's so, like I said, vacuous. I mean, what, even like the, the second lead of this movie, I think is technically, the the buddy cop part of this is supposed to be Judge Reinhold, Rosewood, and he's okay. fucking useless. He does say something like, we're the police, you're all under arrest, twice. But, I mean, it's so annoying in the scene where, what, Eddie Murphy and, and girl in movie go into the warehouse at the end, and he's like, okay, Billy, you stay here until I come out and get you. And then, like, Billy is sitting there watching all of the bad guys go into the warehouse, and he's like... And he doesn't have any lines of dialogue. It's just him looking at the camera going, oh, 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 what you, oh, God. And like he's looking confused. And then he sees the girl being taken hostage come out, cuts to him looking confused again, sees the bad guy come out without Eddie Murphy, which anybody can fucking realize things have gone wrong. And he has that stupid little bit where he opens the car door and closes it again and looks confused because he's like, no, Eddie Murphy told me not to go until he gave me the signal or whatever. But then he eventually goes in. And I'm like, just fucking... Like, you can't be this stupid. Like, I hate how stupid he is as a character. I have no argument. <laughs> but, so I have to mention, of course, uh, Billy Rosewood is played by, played by Judge Reinhold. That's his SAG name. I don't know if his real name is Judge. I'm pretty sure that is something he picked, uh, Judge Reinhold. That's a cool name. Ju- oh, yeah, of course. Judge Reinhold, of course, I think he's most famous from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He's one of the okay. main characters. Um, but... Probably my favorite thing he's ever been in, Arrested Development. Mock trial with Judge Reinhold. Mock trial with Judge Reinhold. He, he's the mock judge. He's not a real judge, but he plays the judge because his name is Judge Reinhold. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. That's great. 
Well, it looks like we've got a mistrial. But on the plus side, we've also got a hung jury. Hit it! All rise for acting's highest honor, Judge Reinhold. Judge Reinhold is neither a real judge nor has he received acting's highest honor. And do you remember the person singing the mock trial with Judge Reinhold is William and his hung jury, and it's William Hung, who is famously the worst contestant on America, American Idol ever? She bang! She bang! I go crazy when she move! She move! <laughs> oh, God. That is one of the best Arrest Development gags. It is mock trial with Judge Reinhold with the theme song performed by William Hung and his hung jury. <laughs> That's, That's a clip I'll have funny. to put in. I haven't I haven't listened to that in so long. <laughs> but I mean, he so Judge Reinhold's probably the second lead, maybe first supporting. I don't know if there's any lead other than Eddie Murphy. I mean, who else we got? Like uh, John Ashton I, as Taggart. Michael, like he has nothing Michael to Tandoni do. Is, he's he's a lead, right? He does as much as the... For the first 15 minutes, yeah, until he gets shot. (laughs) I I meant in that 15 minutes, he does as much as the woman for the whole movie. Yes, definitely. Now, that's a good... That should be our new thing. Like, you know, when when those those people came up with the Bechdel test, we should have, like, the Beverly Hills cop test. Does a male character in 15 minutes do as much as a female character does in 90 minutes? (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, how you can tell if you're sexist. This movie has made us quite woke. Yeah. Uh, um, so Taggart, played by John is, Ashton, he has nothing to do. He's the one of the by-the-book cops. Ronnie Cox as the lieutenant has nothing to do except be, like, cop man. And Well, he, he becomes exposition machine because he's the one who goes, Foley, tell us what you got so Eddie Murphy can have his monologue about, you know, Maitland. Maitland has fuck all to do. He just, you know, sits there and looks at the camera and he's like, you know, you killed my friend. I don't know what you're talking about. Jonathan Banks probably has some t- something to do because he ha- he shoots somebody and then he's in other scenes. Like, it's such a weird, empty movie. It's so yeah, strange when you it's... think about it as a whole how it can have so much, like, star power and energy and love behind it. And then you think of it and it's like, did, like this could have taken place in one room. <laughs> yeah, it definitely could have. Um, and I, I'm reminded of a word. I, th- I think... I think it's the word karaoke means empty orchestra. Is that? Yeah, empty orchestra. Oh, yeah. Kara means empty or void. And uh, okasutora, short, shortened to oki, means orchestra. Okay, right on. What's the word for empty movie? <laughs> <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop. the sound that i feel like this should be like a confucius proverb now like you know they say like what's the sound of one hand clapping it goes what's the sound of an empty movie so apparently is the is the word for movie in japanese okay so karyaiga karyaiga okay something like empty uh empty movie and that's what this movie is um i do i do have to comment we have shit on this movie almost as much as Justin shit on Southland Tales. Uh, well, we've at least explained 
why we're shitting on it. I think that's, that's the benefit. We can explain that we think this is empty movie. Uh, I will never let it go that Ben said, oh, oh God, what was it? I, ha- I can never lose it. We need to re- re- frequently bring this up so it never falls out of my memory. That Ben, I think I said something like, I thought this movie was pretty funny. Like it's getting at trash culture like of the mid-2000s. And Ben goes, well, it was a little too sexual, but I didn't really like it. And I was like, oh, Ben, expand on that. And Justin goes, I didn't like the time travel. <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's how disjointed that conversation was where at least we can explain why we think this is vacuous and carry Iga ish or whatever. I, so, I, I hope that, well, I, I guess I hope that we never have to watch another empty movie, but if we do, I hope carry Iga sticks because that, oh, yeah, I'll have to remember that one. Absolutely. So speaking of, um, yes, we are shitting on this movie. I guess maybe to say some things that uh, I, I can't really say there's, well, we talked about Serge. I like Serge. The scene that we haven't discussed at all is the strip club stopping the robbery. Oh, yes. That scene, that scene is the one I find to be serviceable. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's a nice little action touch, I think, in this movie. My big problem is, it, is they only stop that robbery because Eddie Murphy sees the robbers come in by accident. Yeah. Well, so they, they try to make Eddie Murphy the big superhero. It would have made more sense because Eddie Murphy's like, he says thank you to the waitress and then just happens to see them come through the door. Right. And I'm like, that's, that's the issue. Like, he's not Superman. He can't just sense these things. I want him to have some semblance of, like, a real person. And, but re- the rest of that scene, I do like that interaction where the, the Rosewood and Taggart are like, you're, you're a weirdo, and we don't like you. You're all goofy, and you don't do things the way we do things here in Beverly Hills. And then immediately Taggart's like, oh, no, I know what you're saying. Like, I get, like, you sense something, and him as a cop can also sense it, and they take down the robbers. That's, yeah. like I said, I don't think it's fun. I think it's serviceable. It's fine. <laughs> I also like that the music in that scene the whole time is just uh, Vanity, the band Vanity 6, performing, because you're a naughty girl. I'm a naughty girl. Naughty, naughty girl. And you just hear naughty girl in the background constantly. When I was kind of like passively watching that scene... I definitely assumed that he took him to that strip club because he knew there was some connection to the main storyline and that these people were connected to the main storyline. And then, like, later in the movie, like, when they're talking about it, I was like, oh, this had nothing to do with the main story. Nope. This is nope. just a coincidence. <laughs> like, they're... 100%. 100%. And so, I, I guess I kind of... I wouldn't go so far as to say I didn't like it because it was a coincidence. It just didn't feel like it should have been a coincidence. I don't... I don't know. Maybe the 80s were a different time. Again, I was never in the 80s. Yep. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for saying that because I know people that tell me, they're like, oh, wow, Rob, do you watch Stranger Things? And I go, no. Is it over? And they're like, no, not yet, but it's a really good show. And I'm like, what's good about it? It's a really good representation of the 80s and the nostalgia from the 80s. And I'm like, you're younger than me. You were not alive in the 80s. So clearly you've heard people say that it's a good representation of the 80s because you would have no knowledge of that. And they're like, no, but it's great. And I'm like, it's a show about kids, isn't it? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I never want to watch it. <laughs> so so it, what, I'm, what I'm saying is I don't, I don't think that when people decide to rob places that they choose strip clubs. 
very well-populated strip clubs. <laughs> and I definitely don't think that they did that in the 80s. But that's the part where I'm not sure. Maybe they don't. Maybe that's they a, do. That's a good point. Now that you say that, actually, Ben, like, when we did our Rock series, it made sense what they, they talked about, like, robbing um, the casino. Or the bad yeah. guy ran the casino, but it had, like, strip club elements. What do you do if you rob a strip club? You hold your, You have one guy hold the shotgun at the strippers while someone else picks the dollar bills out of their G-strings? I mean, like, that I mean, seems they, very inefficient. Like, they don't have a vault, presumably. Maybe yeah. they have all their earnings for the night in their locker or something. But, <laughs> like, you're not going to get it from the cash register. Like, that's a multi-step robbery. Yes, yes. Like, that's – it's <laughs> less lucrative and probably slower than robbing a bank. Oh my god! I, I, yeah, I totally agree with you. It makes no sense. It, it, that's, so that's okay. why I was like, this doesn't. This shouldn't be a coincidence. They should be there to like take somebody out. Yeah, like, they should have gone there to like perform a hit, not to rob a strip club. So like, yes. I thought we were seeing. I thought that's what we were seeing. Like I gave the movie a little okay. more credit than it deserves. I guess. Yeah, that scene loses some points for me now that we fleshed that out. We get the stupid line from Eddie Murphy when he says to Judge Reinhold, he's like, Billy, it's okay if your dick gets hard. Your dick's allowed to get hard. Uh, Taggart's dick was... is hard, but he's not going to tell you because the boss man's dick can't get hard. And I'm like, what the fuck are we hearing right now? <laughs> that was rough. Uh, yeah, Eddie Murphy said dick so many times. <laughs> it, like, It's like, my dick's hard. It's good that my dick's hard because it means I got a dick. Yes, it's hard. It's... Like, I was just like, what do you say? Like, you've said the same shit so many times now. <laughs> oh yeah and but so the only thing once again i think this adds to why we were saying this is such an empty movie is that when they when eddie murphy takes the guys the cops to the strip club we get that one one little bit of story going on where eddie murphy pulls out the coffee grounds he found at the warehouse and hands them to taggart and taggart's like coffee grounds so what eddie murphy goes you guys really don't know anything and then he notices the robbers and that doesn't come up for like six more scenes later because they're smuggling drugs in coffee grounds to throw off the drug-sniffing dogs. And it's like, what the hell was that fucking 10, 15 minutes? Like, can we just have the story move? And the answer's no, because the story's so fucking thin that they had to put this nonsense in to stretch it out to an hour and 40 minutes. I mean, they could have left it at one fifteen. Yes. Yes, this would have been great as, like, an under-80-minute movie. <laughs> if they could have made this a 45-minute TV special. Yeah, yes, that's right. You have the opening like, action scene. Axel Foley gets chewed out by his boss. His friend gets killed. He goes to Beverly Hills, uncovers the drug scheme in one trip to the warehouse, not fucking three or whatever it is. Big shootout, done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It could have been like a two-part episode of a 30-minute TV show. Yes. And that would have been dope. And it would have been great because everybody loves two-parters. Everybody's like, oh, shit. I didn't get enough of this last time. Now I'll get a little bit more of it. Like, I don't care who you are. Two parties are probably your favorite fucking episodes. Yeah. Who doesn't love a good to be continued, right? <laughs> yes. So that's this movie could have been. Well, I don't know. Maybe this would have ruined the streak that two parters have. <laughs> I like that. This has been the, the, the end of two parters. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just it's kind of like it's so I, I think that. That was like my highlight of the discussion was I thought that that strip club scene was serviceable. Like that's that's such a strange thing to say that it's like, what's the best part of this movie? I don't know. There was this one scene that was fine. <laughs> so, I, I actually, um, you know, I was I was going through my work day today and I, I, I was a little bit worried about tonight's episode because 
I didn't know what the fuck I was going to say. <laughs> I, I was I was like, what do I have to say about this movie? Like, we've talked about what a hot mess it is, but for so much of the movie, nothing's even happening. Yes, I, it's crazy. <laughs> like, like, you wouldn't think that from this discussion because we've only talked about the action parts, but if you just put five minutes of silence between every sentence we say, <laughs> you'll get a feeling for what this movie's like. Yeah, yeah, it's... Well, Oh, you said you were going to put in the bump, 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 bump. I th- I think it's every eleven minutes. Okay, if, okay. If I counted it. Yeah, correctly. once it. No, I'm I'm actually with you, Ben. I think this is, of course, as I've as I've mentioned before, and this is just fleshing it out even more. Uh, af- during Zach's hiatus, I tried to find the next person to talk to. It's Ben, because if we both like a movie, great conversation goes on way too long, and we go on too many tangents. If one <laughs> of us likes it, one of us doesn't. Still a great conversation because we can debate about it. If both of us don't like the movie, we still have shit to say about it, because we're just over 90 minutes now. And I thought this was going to be, like, the the third ever hour-long Cinemodities episode. <laughs> I, I definitely was afraid of that. I, I, was, I was sitting there, I was like, I'm going to say that it wasn't good. <laughs> and, then he, and then he's going to say that it wasn't good. And then we're going to talk about how nothing happened. And then we're going to talk about the Patreon? Like, I, don't, I was like, I don't know what we're doing. Um, no, yeah. So, so no, I mean, I, I think the only other... I have just a few tiny things I want to talk about this movie. We fleshed it out. This was exactly what I wanted. I wanted the world to finally know why I think this beloved movie is terrible. And I think we did that. And, and I'm glad we got two people who really did not like it. I think the, the two things I wanted to touch on uh, at the very end... Or maybe three. One's a little small one. Um, there are two different instances in this movie where characters pronounce the word hoodlum as hoodlum. Did you pick oh, up on that? I didn't. I think it's the. I think it's the. Um, the his boss in Detroit, Eddie Murphy's boss in Detroit, and then it's girl in movie that says it. One a hoodlum friend. Axel, you look like a hoodlum. And they say hoodlum. Okay. Who, I, it's hoodlum. I don't know if it was in the 80s, but I don't know if you picked up on that, because I found hoodlum very strange. I think that's another I, testament to how boring this movie is, that Rob was picking up on hoodlum. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to mention that I found it very interesting that there's actually, a, for an R-rated movie, which I think it got R because of the, the uh, language and the violence, but the violence in this movie is not very bloody. It's not till the last shootout that we get blood. Like, I found it very surprising that when we get the shot of Mikey getting execution-style killed... There's no blood. There's no blood. There's no blood at all. And then a lot of the shootouts, like at the warehouse and the mansion at the end, there's not a lot of blood. It's only till Eddie Murphy gets clipped in the shoulder, and when him and the lieutenant blow away Maitland, we see a shitload of blood against the wall. I just found that weird for an action movie that they would be like, you know, we don't need a lot of blood until the very end where they just have, I don't know, maybe the money shot, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to put the blood on her face. What did you say? (laughs) I just thought that was strange that it's it's very anti or not bloody in like a lot of gun violence scenes. Because you brought it up, I I do want to mention... A couple things about about this this kind of last scene shootout. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I want to mention mention them in reverse order of what they happen. Sure. When Maitland dies, he falls down a staircase that, as far as I could tell, didn't exist. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a very strange edit that he just <laughs> he gets shot and then just 
Like, I I didn't think he came up some stairs to end up where he was. I thought he was just like in a hallway attached to a kitchen or something. I I felt and the same he, way. Yes, very he strange. He falls down some stairs. That, that whole I mean that's a a thing I've always said about action. I think that entire in the house. Not the other cops outside, but in the house with Eddie Murphy and then Jonathan Banks and whoever else. I had no notion of the geography of what was going on. Sure. Like, I was just like, whatever. Like, people are wherever the fuck they are. And at that point in the movie, I'm just like, it doesn't matter. Because Eddie Murphy's not going to die. Because, one, he's invincible in this movie. And I know there's fucking two other movies, you know? Like, Eddie Murphy's not, has nothing going against him. So, it didn't matter. But outside, I thought was fine. Outside takes place in just kind of like that courtyard. And I was like, the perfect. geometry or the geography or whatever, whatever you want to say about that. That that was fine uh, for the outside area. I yeah, agree. Yeah. The the other thing I wanted to mention, while they're getting shot with a hail of bullets. Oh yes. All the guards have machine guns. <laughs> nobody gets hit. They mm-hmm. are like. The it's it's like that scene from Pulp Fiction where there's bullet holes behind them on the wall and they're like that had to be divine intervention. Yes, like that's... yes, that's where this movie should have gone because Pulp Fiction does it great where there Samuel Jackson is like I don't want to be hitman anymore I want to give my life to God because this was divine intervention like that's a plot point in in Pulp Fiction in this movie they're just like no we're invincible <laughs> we could be hitmen now. Um, <laughs> No, I it, like that comparison. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but seriously, like there, there, you can see like dust flying from the wall and shit, and and they're they're just like the people are shooting literally the ground behind them as they're running away. Yep, following them at perfect pace. <laughs> they're just on delay. <laughs> it's. It, it had like it almost had to have been an automated system that was just like tracing their their speed. Yep. And and so anyway, that again, not that that alone, not a movie ruiner. That shit happens. Action scenes have to be unrealistic because people have to survive yeah, long enough to do the action. That's the one thing that I'm like, okay, early '80s action, totally fine. Like, that's, that's what early 80s action was. They put their squibs places so it looks like gunshots, you know, and everybody's able to dodge it because that's what the choreography is. Fine. It's just that it's the end of the movie when it's been established that there's no consequences to any action period where I'm just like, fuck this. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that last scene, I hated that we, we are going into that last big shootout. And you know that's what the movie's been building to. Like, Maitland is holed up in this big mansion he has. He has all these guards with the guns. Eddie Murphy's going in. They see him on the monitors. He's going to have to shoot his way through. You're like, yeah, this is classic action. But let's cut to Rosewood and Taggart goofily trying to get over a wall on each other's shoulders. And I'm like, I wish I was, I was so tempted to be like, hey, I got a little pair of, like, trimming scissors upstairs. I might actually want to make myself blind. <laughs> That was the dumbest fucking stuff. I do have to say, in in that scene, I mean, that might have been, like, Taggart being on top of Rosewood's shoulders and then him falling. That might have been the most dangerous thing we saw in this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, with, that was... as old as Taggart is, like, that really should have hurt him. Yes, and also because I can't help, but the movie has taken me so out of the movie universe that I'm thinking in reality, why the fuck would the fat man go on top of the skinny kid? Like, I right? had the exact same thought. You, like, I, literally, I, Taggart should have just picked up Judge Reinhold and whipped him. Like, that's what this movie needed. 
to pole vault Judge Reinhold into a goon with a machine gun. Oh, I would have yeah, loved that. That would have been, <laughs> been good. That could that would have been one of the redeeming qualities. If this movie went full on slapstick for the last shootout, I would have been all about it. I would have been like, okay, I get it. This whole movie's garbage and nonsense, and now you're owning the garbage and nonsense. <laughs> Even I I hate we cut back to like Eddie Murphy's inside the house and we keep cutting back to the outside with Taggart and Rosewood and Rosewood does the police freeze put your guns down they get shot at and Taggart's like if you do that again I'm gonna shoot you and it's like no you're the fucking by the book cops if we know anything that's what you would do in this situation you would say you would identify yourself as police before you started recklessly murdering people. <laughs> Absolutely. That that was just kind of cringy to me. Oh yeah, yeah. It was cringe like, is a good word for a lot of the their interaction, the two cops, I think. It's like are you trying to act cool now? Like what are you doing? Uh, especially earlier on when uh they get the the late supper delivered to them in their car. I thought that was cringy where Taggart's like I don't want this. Like we're on a stakeout where I don't want a food and Judge Reinhold's like, "Oh, but it looks good." And I'm just like, God fucking damn it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that scene would have gone would have been delivered better if Reinhold had just started stuffing his face while Tagger was complaining about you know, not looking right or whatever. Maybe that's what this movie needs. This movie needs a more slapstick own the cringiness of it. Like I would love to see like a parody of this movie, but like a shot for shot remake parody. Where it just dives into the craziness and stupidity of every single scene. And then I mean, it would actually be, be fun. Parody or an improvement? <laughs> <laughs> now that, you, you had the Carriaga come up. We need a word for a movie that is parodying another movie, but actually makes an improvement on it. <laughs> oh, that's, let's see. Because there's I'll some think, bad movies that we could do that with, you know? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, hmm. And it, Improvement. That's, that, that's not it. <laughs> para para improvement. That's para, better than improvementy. Something, something like that. But no, this movie is totally like open to that. Like you just fucking like imagine the opening chase music video where we just have like multiple scenes where the truck crashes into something or takes a sharp turn and we see the stunt double fly off the back, but immediately in the next edit, the stunt double's back hanging on the truck and we just see it fly off like 20 times. And then he's Eddie Murphy's there at the end. (laughs) So, you know, talking about the, the cringe factors of this movie, when all the cops show up at the mansion, at Maitland's mansion, like they just like nonstop run into each other. Oh, yes! Oh, my God, that's right! We get an extended scene of cops just rear-ending other cop cars. Like, the one thing I could say about that is those cars were made in the 80s, so they probably survived that encounter, and it wasn't that bad for them. And if you'd done that with a car now, it would have been total. But, like, <laughs> why? That that actually was a point. I'm glad you bring that up, because I didn't make a note about it, but I remember watching that last night, and I think I was laughing, but it was a very heartily laughing at the movie. <laughs> Because it, you're right, it's extended. You get that whole it's, great it's like shot. Cars. Like, you get the Are great, sorry. like, wa- like wide-lens shot and deep field of, of focus, so you can just see that whole driveway, and these cars just keep hitting each other, and you hear every single sound of when they hit each other. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, it's insane. I think the last thing I wanted to mention, 
this might be my favorite part of the movie because, of course, there's the Martin Bress series. Uh, when Eddie Murphy checks out of the hotel at the end, and of course, because nothing bad can happen to Eddie Murphy, the cops show up and pay for his hotel room because fuck any consequences to a movie. The guy checking out Eddie Murphy is Martin Brest. That's the director of this movie. Okay. So that's, uh, that's what he looks like, if you remember that, even though nobody remembers that. Because if you watch this movie, you are so tuned out by that last scene. <laughs> yeah. But I had to mention we had our cameo. Our, our first, actually, in... Uh, Martin Brest has done, been in a few movies in small parts, but this is the first movie of his that he has cameoed in. And um, he plays the hotel clerk. And next week, we'll have to talk about it. He plays an, air, he plays an airline clerk in Midnight Run. So when he cameos in his own movies, he likes being clerks and checking people in and out of things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Martin uh, Brest, like I said at the start, we got to take the good with the bad. Of course, next week, I'm going to give my rankings of all Martin Brest movies. Ah, even though I have to rewatch some and, and do my finalized rankings, I'm really tempted to say this is going to be my last place. This right. movie sucks. Like, like, I, like, like I said, Gili, academic exercise. There's so much to say about that movie. It's one of the, I love movies where I go, this might be the worst movie I've ever seen, but I could talk about it for a day straight. That's Gili. Even Meet Joe Black, that's not a great movie, but there's so much going on in the craziness of that movie. I'm, I'm kind of thinking Beverly Hills Cop is going to be my last place Martin Brest movie. And that yeah. is insane because it is so well-liked. So I guess, Ben, at the end of this, if you have any final thoughts on Beverly Hills Cop or what do you want to say to all the people out there that love this movie? What do you want to say to the year of 1984 where this movie outgrossed the original Ghostbusters? Oh, God. Yes. Um, I don't... It's, it's fuck them, right? Okay. No, I won't put words in your mouth. <laughs> How is this classified as a comedy? Like, that's I, all I... I... I know! I'm with you! I'm so confused! <laughs> the the description on, like, Amazon Prime is something like fast-paced action comedy something... It's not fast-paced. Barely in the action. No comedy. Maybe two jokes. <sighs> it's, it's absolutely bonkers, man, that this, this is the big one of the biggest movies. Period. Yeah. So, like I said, no, it, beat, it beat Ghostbusters in 1984. It beats the third Indiana Jones. It beats Gremlins, which is a fucking actually fantastic movie. It beats The Karate Kid in 1984. It beats Police Academy. It beats Footloose. It beats Romancing the Stone, which is actually a really good movie. Footloose? It, yeah, the, the movie where the Foot town bands dancing. Foot? Kick off your Sunday shoes, Rob. <laughs> it beats Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. It beats Splash, where Tom Hanks falls in love with a mermaid. I I would actually put all of those movies except Star Trek Three as better than Beverly Hills Cop. Star Trek Three is not good. Actually, I think I would also objectively say that's better than Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop is probably one of my least favorite movies of all time. It's it's real bad. You know, I, I've I don't I, I just I'm going to sound like a broken record. I have nothing else to say about this. Movie. It's I know bad. it's 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 I know we've done. I think honestly we have done it justice, Ben. We've explained to the world why I and why now we. Do not like Beverly Hills Cop. I still like Martin Brest. This is why I'm very excited. Next week, when we talk about uh, Midnight Run, 
which is a movie I find fun. So it's it's uh, it's a, his next film after after Cinemodities after <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop. Martin Brest does it with Midnight Run. Ben, we'll have you on that episode. It'll be a great comparison to see what you think about his two action comedy movies. And of course, don't feel bad because I said I liked it. We love to have any opinion, but um, I I couldn't. Because originally I was thinking it was like, oh, we'll have Ben on Beverly Hills Cop. Zach will get the week off. Then we'll, Zach and I'll do Midnight Run. No, we got to get you back, Ben. Now that you've seen one Martin Breast, the worst Martin Breast, the most egregiously, horrendously offensive Martin Breast, we got to see what you think about one of his other movies. Absolutely. So we'll have yeah. Ben on for that. And with that being said, if there's nothing else about one of the worst movies, I would say, in history. Are you ready for our, our questions? I am. I don't think this is going to shock anybody. Uh, for Cinemodities, I'm going, no. It's, it's what is supposed to be a typical comedy action movie that fringes on being a superhero movie that ends up being incessantly boring and annoying. Well, maybe egregiously boring, incessantly annoying with the bum, 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 but okay. Late night? Absolutely not. I would never want to subject someone to this movie, honestly. I would rather show somebody as a late night movie one of the quote-unquote bad Eddie Murphy movies, like The Adventures of Pluto Nash or Norbit, because at least you can laugh at how bad they are. This is like, people would be like, why are we watching this? I hope, I, I, on the other side of that coin, I would never want to show this to someone as a late night movie, and then they're like, I love it! Because I'd be like, listen, get the fuck out of my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to know for both. Ben, what do you think? Uh, is it odd? Ben, Ben's like, can we skip this for this movie? <laughs> is, it, is it odd? I mean, it's it's odd in that the, all of the descriptions and awards it got don't match it at all. Or lauding, maybe not awards. I agree uh, with a, you there that um, I was tempted to say yes because of the cultural significance this has, but I, I, I had to just think about the movie for me. But but of course, a cinemodity is different to everybody, but I, I do agree with you there. The fact that this movie is so goddamn bad and considered one of the greats in multiple categories, hell yeah, that's odd. That's a very opinionated odd, though, I think. It, it, yeah, <laughs> I agree. It is. It's an opinionated odd. Late Night? Have you, have you ever seen... The movie How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think we watched that together once. They they could make a movie called How to Lose Friends and Alienate People better that is really just you <laughs> showing the Beverly Hills Cop. Now, that I like. The movie starts with you put on How to Make Friends and Alienate – or How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. The movie starts with Simon Pegg moving into that new apartment. He gets that girl over in, like, the first 15 minutes of the movie. He puts on Beverly Hills Cop and just Beverly Hills Cop plays for the remainder of the movie. <laughs> okay, so I like that's... that. That's a good. That's a good comparison. No, I, I've only seen that once, and I think it was the time we watched it. I think my favorite Simon Pegg movie is either At World's End or Run Fat Boy Run. Oh yeah, okay. I like Run Fat Boy Run. I know we I'm also like Hot Fuzz. Fuzz. Yeah, Hot Fuzz yeah. is really good, but Hot Fuzz is a great. Oh my god, that's actually a good comparison. You want to do action comedy? Watch Hot Fuzz. <laughs> like, that's an actually funny movie with action in it. Yes. Yeah, there you go. So for the late night recommendation, watch Hot Fuzz. <laughs> what do we think about late night for Beverly Hills Cup? Yeah, uh, I would say yes to Hot Fuzz. <laughs> <laughs>
Perfect. Oh, that's good. That's good. So I guess that brings us to our snacks. Um, I think first off the bat, because it's come up so many times on Cinemodities, it's come up before with you, Ben. We have another instance of cigarettes being added to the restaurant. Because how can you not want all those cigarettes from the beginning of the movie at the restaurant? Lucky strikes. I think this. I think we're now at six or seven different episodes of Cinemodities where we've added cigarettes to the menu, which we just have to keep going now, you know? <laughs> uh I'd like to believe that it's on the menu multiple times. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Like, it's like, you know, okay, okay, you know, it's like I got uh, maybe like a, uh, like the, uh, the the freaked meal, the neon demon meal, which is what, uh, cold coffee and fruit cup or something like that, but you don't <laughs> eat the fruit cup. And then they get the cigarettes, they read some other things, they flip the page. Oh, cigarettes again. Is that different from the other cigarettes? No, it's just cigarettes. It's the same price and everything. <laughs> 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 so yeah, you're, you're definitely right there. Um, I think I mentioned it earlier. I would love somewhere in the restaurant we have that art piece from uh, Girl in Movies Gallery. Her name in the movie is Jenny. I guess I should say once, but she's Girl in Movie because she's so empty and vacuous. But the um, the all white, the people at the dinner table, all bandaged in white with the heads spinning on the plates, and there's like a butler wearing chains around his neck next to it as well. I just want that somewhere in the restaurant because that's the best part about this movie. And once again, that's telling for this movie. The best part of an hour and 45-minute film is a static piece of art that we see for 10 seconds. <laughs> so I have a few things. They're, they're more akin to attractions or okay, sure. features than food. One of them, we need to add a nap room. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Beverly Hills Cop is playing all the time. So, so that no matter what you're doing, no matter what state you're in, you could fall asleep. I, I really like that, and I want to expand on that by saying when you go into the nap room, you, you, will, you, can, you have the ability to set an alarm to wake you up, but you can only choose moments Excellent. at which the theme song plays in the movie to wake you up. And you can only pick these weird timestamps to wake you up, and it's like, yeah, I'd like to take a 20-minute uh, nap, and it's like, no, 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 we don't do that here. Uh, you could take a 6-minute, 47-second nap. You can take a 15-minute, 32-second nap. <laughs> and it's just like all the timestamps of when they play the theme song. Perfect. <laughs> and then one at the end is like, you can take a an hour and 15-minute and 30-second nap, or an hour and 16-minute and 3-second nap. <laughs> Um, that's good. That's good, the, man. The uh, the other thing I want to add are there art exhibits already in the restaurant? Oh yeah, we have a few. Um, so one, we do have a, a little like you know how like Disneyland and Disney World have Main Street and there's like shops for tourists and stuff like that. We have something very similar to that. One of the stores is a barber shop. Um, one of the stores is someplace you can get like lab work and DNA testing done. But one of them is a is what we call the Hall of Directors, and directors we really like, we have their busts in there. So like there's a David Lynch bust. I'm pretty sure I've lobbied for a Martin Breast bust, but Zach doesn't like that. Hopefully he'll change his mind when we finish this series. So we have some of that artwork. Um, I know I've told you also, Ben, we like to have memorabilia from movies in certain places. Our favorite is we have just a pile of sand, and that's the dune, the sand dune from Dune. <laughs> uh, we have a cane, and it's the cane from Citizen Kane, and like stuff like that. So there's, there's that type of artwork in there, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
All right. So what I'm thinking is, is this is kind of like an interactive art exhibit. Oh, ooh, okay. Okay. It's, it's just called Cariaga and you walk in to what appears to be a theater and you sit down and nothing happens. <laughs> That's some like MoMA shit right there. Where it's like, what's playing? Nothing. <laughs> uh, and I there's like definitely that. never any indication that nothing is happening. Just nothing happens. That so I'm actually that's interesting you bring that up. Um, one of my this is this is a oh and there are restricted show times like it and okay. it's like two. <laughs> okay, like good, good. I like I like that. I like that. Um, I, I I don't think this ever come up on the podcast. Um, I hope it's still around. I haven't been there in like f- seven years or something. Uh, maybe in longer, but there is a museum in Pittsburgh called the Mattress Factory, and it's one of the best museums I've ever been to. Um, it, it is a museum that is speci- uh, specializes in art, really art installations more than artworks. And so installations in terms of, I guess, the art community is full-sized rooms of art. Yeah. And so it's like the whole room is created to give a certain experience. Like, like one of the things that I think is most accessible is you can actually go into a room where every single surface is covered in mirrors. And you just experience that. Like, that's one of the things you can do at the Mattress Factory. Um, when you mentioned the nothing showing, at the Mattress Factory, there is an exhibit where you can, like, go into this hallway. You follow this winding hallway to, which leads you to two chairs. It's like a two-person-at-a-time kind of experience, and you just sit there, and the hallway eventually, and the room you sit in, is complete darkness, like no light sources whatsoever. And the idea is you're basically going into a sensory deprivation tank for sight. And it's really cool. And the thing that got me the first time I went to the this mattress factory, it was me and my girlfriend at the time, and we sat there for a while. It's actually really cool. Like, your eyes start to get fucky, you know? It's like, do you see light? Do you not see light? It's like, if you've, if you've ever been in complete darkness, it's that experience. Like, 100% darkness. Not like your microwave lights on or anything like that. Or the little red, red light on your TV. Like, total darkness. But when we were, like, ready to go out, or our time was up, you know, because there's an attendant that, like, guides you to it and stuff so you don't break your neck on, like, you know, getting in complete darkness. I was like, I really want to see what the hell this is. Like, what are we looking at? And I took up my phone and I put the flashlight on and it was literally a gigantic room of nothing. Like, we were on a balcony with two seats and it must have been, like, a 15-foot tall room and just so deep. And it was like, that's crazy that we were sitting in darkness with no spatial awareness. And it was one of the biggest rooms in the museum. Wow. It was really cool. I love that. I also love, there's a great, another exhibit we went to. We go through this hallway, which is lit on a different floor. I think that thing, that dark room was just the one entire floor of the museum. And we go into this, we follow this thing, and I get to the entrance And it's a big, deep room. Like, I'm talking, like, even deeper than the one I just described. And the only thing at the end is a purple rectangle. And it just looks like this whole white room, there's no light except coming from this purple rectangle. And it looks like it's just like a light on the wall. And as we get closer and closer, I start to think to myself, well, okay, either this is a purple, like, luminescent rectangle that's either out of the wall, like it's something that's been painted to reflect the little light we have and make this color, and it's like on studs or something to come out of the wall, or it's flush with the wall. And as I get closer, I'm trying to figure out, like, which one is it? Like, is it flush to the wall, or is it exuded from the wall? And I'm really trying to figure it out. And as I'm walking up to this, and we're going pretty slowly, like I said, it's a big room, but we're like going slowly, like trying to experience it. I have the thought 
that I'm going to, when I get to it, I'm going to put my hand under this purple rectangle and I'm going to slide it up. And if my hand gets stopped, it exudes from the wall because I've hit force and I've hit this purple rectangle that's out of the wall. Or my hand's just going to slide up and go along the wall and that means it's flush with the wall. So I get to the end of this room. I put my hand not on the purple rectangle but under it and I start to move it up. And when I hit the purple rectangle, my hand goes through the wall. And what the exhibition was, was there was another room lit by purple lights entirely on the other side of this. Blew my fucking mind, man. <laughs> so you couldn't even tell when you were standing right next to it? No. Like how, when, thin, when, how thin was the wall? Uh, uh, fairly thin, if I remember correctly. But that's how good of an optical illusion it was. That I was convinced wow. it was just a, a literal rectangle somewhere on the wall. And I did not notice anywhere that it was an entire another room next to me. That's, yeah, that you didn't notice it that far, like that close to it. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. It was. It was one of the most mindfuck. Well, there had to have been nothing for there to be referenced in the other room for you to notice a changing in perspective. Exactly. Exactly. Like it's. It was. That's crazy. It is crazy. This is. This is the same museum. There's just like one of the installations is there's a giant hole in the floor. There's just like literally from the, the one of the top floors just straight through and you just you can see outside. It's just wow. the coolest shit, man. I love the mattress factory. That probably, you know, now that I bring this up for the first time on the podcast, that has probably a lot of subcon- subconscious influence on the concept of the Cinemodities restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Ben, I like your idea of uh, we, we have a theater with nothing showing in it. <laughs> I think my last snack is something that we didn't talk about with this movie, which always gets a lot of attention. The banana in the tailpipe. I would like to serve bananas that have been cooked, in air quotations, in the exhaust pipe of a vehicle. Like, you know, maybe we have a vehicle, we turn it on, we stuff a banana up there, we let it get mushy, we serve that to somebody. (laughs) I don't know if that would taste good. I don't know what a banana's skin would do to exhaust, if it would let it through or if it would block it, but... I don't, I don't know. I don't. I also don't eat bananas at all. So, I think it would be poisonous. Um, That's what we can hope for, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> oh, with that being said, Ben, did you have any other snacks for um, the uh, for the no, restaurant? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, maybe just somebody in every room that can tell you you're not whatever race you are enough. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So with that being said, I think to, to close things up, um, so once again, I think Ben and I want to make a pitch. Definitely check out the Cinemodities Patreon, patreon.com slash Cinemodities. Uh, we're doing good stuff over there. Now that we have people in there, we are, like we said, preparing for the deluge. Oh, it's actually, oh, it's actually really weird to say that. I like open the floodgates. Prepare for the deluge was the high school yearbook quote of Andres Cunanan, the serial killer. Actually, no, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that jives with Cinemodities. We, uh, we say prepare for the deluge, and they'd be like, isn't that the serial killer quote? Yes, so pay for our services. <laughs> but no, we have a, a lot of good stuff on over there. Like I think the audience knows, we always do something a little goofy, a little weirder than, uh, maybe goofier is the better word, than we usually do on Cinemodities proper on the first of the month. And uh, because you can see so many posts on there, we are going through Adventure Time at a good clip, which I hope people really, really enjoy. 
Um, those episodes, when we record them, Ben, they're getting longer and longer, and I hope people like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they're getting deeper and deeper in terms of uh, content. So. Yeah, we're hitting the meat of those episodes, absolutely. Um, anything else you wanted to say about the Patreon? Come check it out. We yes. appreciate all your support. We are open to feedback about the content we create. Yes, absolutely. Also, Please let us know. Yeah. We have definitely discussed potentially putting Adventure Time out faster if there's a desire for that. Yeah, so if you want yeah. Because we us talk about Adventure Time. Oh God, because we can do it. Jeez, I I still haven't even edited all the ones that go through like April of this year. We can <laughs> pump that shit out so fast, and and we want to too. That's the thing. We just want other people to want us to. He's <laughs> right. Oh right. Well, yes. I'll put the link in the show notes. Like I said, uh, please feel free to harass us about how, I guess for the first time, how woke we are. Uh, at cinemodities at gmail.com or on the Cinemodities subreddit, uh, reddit.com slash r slash cinemodities. I think the only things left to say are that next week we are going to finish up our Martin Breast series with Midnight Run. We'll have Ben back. I'm hoping Zach will be there because I really want him to check out that movie, get his thoughts on it. But of course, after we discuss Midnight Run, there'll be a little discussion about uh, the remaining Hen- uh, Henry Martin Breast movies that we haven't discussed, and I will give my rankings, which I am very excited to do whenever we cover a director. The last thing, Ben, is how do we end this episode? And I have a pitch. You might not like it, but this is this is my idea for the ending music for this episode. We play the Axel F theme in reverse to hopefully undo the sins of its existence. Ben just, I think Ben just dropped a pen when I said that, so I take that as full approval. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect. I, I was if I was going to suggest anything, it would have been the crazy frog version. But uh, but I'm I'm okay with it. It's going to be like we're I'm, hopefully when I when we play this in reverse, it'll be like we took Beverly Hills Cop and put it in the turnstiles of Tenet, so it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> All right, Ben. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sitting through such a horrendous movie, and we'll see you next week. Well, then.